Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the the movies. Let's all go to the the movies to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be Spider-Man, hero or menace? Exclusive Daily Bugle photos. Menace. He was protecting that armor. Tell you what, Atticus, you take the pictures. I'll make up the headlines. Okay. All right. That okay with you? Yes, sir. Goody. I'd like a job, sir. No jobs. Freelance. Best thing in the world for a kid your age. You bring me some more shots of that newspaper selling clown, maybe I'll take him off your hands. But I never said you have a job. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Let's All Go to the Marvels. I am Doug Leaf. I am Jordan T. Maxwell. And we're your friendly neighborhood podcasters today because we're talking about Spider-Man, specifically the 2002 Spider-Man, starring one Tobey Maguire. Uh, Jordan, you excited to talk about this one? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this film. I don't love everything about it, and I've kind of gone sort of back and forth uh, over the years because I... Loved it, head over heels for it when it first came out. Uh, within the next like couple of years, started to maybe see like some of the you know cracks, especially when the the second one came out, and I was like, oh, I like this one better, and here's why. And then, uh, but the more I kind of, kind of come back to it, like it still has so much charm, and even the things that I'm not a big fan of, I can kind of look back at as artifacts of their time, shall we say. You know, it's funny you say that. I had kind of the same response to it. It's been a while since I watched this. And I, like you, I, I loved it when it first came out. And uh, the, there were definitely things that bugged me about it back in 2002. And there's those things still bug me. Um, there's still things about the movie that I go like, eh, this, this could use a little more time in the oven. Um, and we'll certainly talk about all the time they spent in the oven because there was quite a lot. Um, on balance, right. this—I mean, I don't want to sound too negative. This is a great film. It's one of the most successful films of all time. And again, uh, sort of like X Men, one of the reasons we're even able to do a podcast like this was the success of this movie. Um, but there are definitely things about it where you go, like, yeah, this might be, just be an artifact of of its time or the kind of you know awkward process by which it got made um but and, and also like you said sort of the fact that it's shown up so much by spider-man 2 which is so much better it's sort of like this movie uh walked so that movie could run uh and i guess so spider-man 3 could dance um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you know yes. we'll, we'll get into it but you know it, th- this is a great film it's a lot of fun even the parts that you know uh, are are a little dated or just don't quite work. Um, like you said, you can overlook that because there's so much here to love. Uh, the thing that it really kind of reminds me of, I think, within even within its own genre, is it, it very much brings to mind, not even necessarily in tone or style, but I guess just a certain, I don't even know how to describe it, a vibe or aura. It very much feels like, uh, Donner's Superman to me, the very first one. Um, and because it's a great origin story, you know, great wholesome hero who has to learn a lesson and, you know, work in the big city. And there's kind of the obligatory time jump uh, between uh, acts one and two. Um, but I think 
more than anything, it's because the film, even when you go back and watch Donner Superman, and I don't mean to give too much voice to our uh, to our podcast's uh, distinguished competition, uh, if there is such a thing out there. If anyone's <laughs> out there doing uh, a DC, DC movies only podcast, uh, mm-hmm. we we tip our hats to you. And if you're not, then if we ever find time when we're done with this one, maybe we'll go loop back around. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that always strikes me about that movie, going back to it and with this one, is how much it works despite the things that don't work. Like, there is such a strong heart at the core of this movie and the things it does right and the things it understands about the character and the things it has to say about us and about people um, and just kind of the overall sort of earnestness and inspiring message really overcomes so many of those like, oh, this doesn't, you know, make so much sense with the plot. Well, isn't that convenient? Oh, this is a little hokey. This feels dated. This is a complete misunderstanding of what makes the genre work. Like, all of those things kind of fall to the side when you take the film as a whole. It's just kind of like, you know, yeah, we can look at it critically and, you know, pick it apart. And we should. And that should be done. But then when you're also just sitting there, just watching it and just being taken for, uh, I was going to say the ride, but for a swing, uh through the city streets of New York, uh, you just, there's a part of you that just can't help but love it. I think that's exactly right. I, you know, you're, you mentioned Donner Superman and I feel like this movie is like the exact halfway point tonally between Donner Superman and Tim Burton's Batman. Like there's elements of both of those in, in here. Uh, It's not quite as rosy and sunny as uh as Superman is, it's certainly nowhere near as dark as Batman is. Um, it's right in the middle and and as you said, the the, the beating heart of this movie um, th- that makes Peter Parker's character tick, to me that that drives the whole thing. His performance is so strong that when you think when everyone goes like, well, let's rank who are the best spider-man it's it's hard not to pick Toby Maguire as good as I think the other two are. Um, there's something about this performance and him in particular that, um, that really makes this work. And it may just be, this is gloomy, but the idea of like Peter Parker kind of has to suffer a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, We talked about this. We talked about this in the, um, in the spider verse podcast that we did, uh, way back. Um, but the big thing about this character is that is, is the noble sacrifice, Right. That if we're going to tell him with great power comes great responsibility, that only has meaning when Peter Parker has to do what he knows is right, even though it comes at great personal cost. And I think only until the most recent Spider-Man until No Way Home, like Tom Holland's character didn't have to do that. Right. Um, You know, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man does uh, do that at the end of uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. But Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, you can kind of feel that throughout, that he's constantly having to just kind of, you know, take one for the team, the team being the the citizens of New York, over and over again because he knows it's right and that that is so inspiring as a character. So yeah, that's I think my that there, on it. There are definitely elements, I think, that uh, carry through. The, the ways that the different... 
films and film series sort of approach this notion that uh, gets called in the comics. I don't think it ever gets mentioned in any of the movies so far, but it's a very uh, commonly referred to trope in Spider-Man comics. Uh, that old Parker luck, um, which is that things will always go wrong uh, when you need them to go right. And oftentimes the opposite is true as well. Um, you know, so... Hey, I've got to get across town with uh, Aunt May's uh, medicine. And that just happens to be the day that uh, Dr. Octopus decides to attack. Oh, I've got to fight Dr. Doom. But in order to do it, I have to miss uh, Mary Jane's uh, surprise birthday party. That I've spent uh, all this time and effort and money finding the exact perfect gift. And... Uh, it turns out that it's the exact doodad I need to stop his nefarious scheme. It's always... But then there's balance there. Because he does always triumph. And he does always prevail against impossible odds. He always finds that wellspring of strength. Um, which I think is why he kind of stands among the really kind of iconic sort of champion level superheroes. You're... You know, you're, you're Superman, you're Batman, you're Captain America, you're Iron Man even. Uh, you know, these kind of larger-than-life heroes. Spider-Man really is a street-level hero when you come down to it. He's swinging over the streets. But, you know, he's a neighborhood hero. He takes care of the little guy more than anything. But the reason that he kind of stands shoulder-to-shoulder, I think... In the esteem of audiences, whether they be of the comics, of uh, the movies, of the cartoons, of anything, um, and even the esteem of the heroes in his own universe, is because he has that wellspring of moral strength to draw from. And it really is earned from the loss, from the sacrifice, whether that's Uncle Ben, whether that's Gwen Stacy, whether that's Captain Stacy, whether that's Gene DeWolf, whether that's Ned Leeds, whether that's... I mean, he loses time and time and time again in his own life. And he keeps pulling himself back up and he keeps on going and he keeps cracking jokes, which uh, is probably one of my... Uh, and even in the beginning was one of my biggest complaints about this movie. Spider-Man does not quip enough in this film. Spider-Man needs to be cracking jokes constantly and we get like one really terrible joke uh, in this film which uh, is their only like attempt at quipping. And it's just, that, that, that was a disappointment to me. I love so many things about this movie and I was like, why isn't he cracking jokes more? Which is why I think like... Garfield and Holland kind of rank higher for me because they quit more. They 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 are quipsters in a way that uh, Toby only very rarely gets to be. Uh, he's got some good ones in the second one, which I think is was one of the things that made me enjoy the second one a lot more. But um, but beyond all that, you know, beyond all the humor and kind of the the clown mask, he is. A hero of Sisyphean proportions. He is always going to just find the strength to roll that boulder up the hill. And it's always going to roll back down and 
crush him along the way. Um, it's both inspiring and deeply depressing at times just to be like, can't this guy catch a break? But that's, I think what draws us in. I think that's the kind of the, the key to his empathy is that we've all been in that position. We've all been worn down. We've all tried to do the right thing and had it blow up in our face. And Spider-Man and Peter Parker are that kind of moral paragon of what we could be if we all had the strength to pick ourselves up afterwards, as hard as it might be. And we look at that and I think we see what we hope to be, what we aspire to be, what we hope we would be in those circumstances. Um and at the end of the day, as I've said, you know, multiple times on this pocket, you know, superheroes are at their core aspirational stories. Spider-Man more so than any other. The the fact that he is one of the few heroes who has like a moral maxim, like a philosophy that can be summed up and is known worldwide. You know, he, he was not necessarily the first uh, to utter it, or rather, you know, Stan Lee was not the first to utter it, uh, you know, perhaps in those words, but with great power, there must also come great responsibility. I mean, that's just a beautiful philosophy that I think more of us uh, could stand to embrace. Yeah, you know, he is, as- like you said, aspirational is the right word. We all wish... I think, you know, in in the fantasy of if I were gifted this level of superpower, you know, would I make the choice that he makes? Would I do the right thing, even if it hurt me personally? Um, Or would I abuse this power? You know, and and because Peter never does, he always does the morally, almost always does the morally right thing. uh, But that's also what kind of draws us in is that he does he does do the selfish thing at first. He does say, like, you know, yeah, it's like, I'm going to use this for yeah. personal gain. I'm going to use this to get famous. I'm going to use this to make money. And that's what winds up, you know, backfiring. Like, it's not enough to just know that lesson inherently. To know, oh, yes, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. It's that you have to learn it through, oh, I did this selfish thing one time. And I lost one of the most important people in the world to me because of it. You know, he has to... And, you know, and that's true in Uncle Ben's case and all the other sacrifices, there are varying levels of uh, personal responsibility and tragic irony and all manner of things. But the fact that he did the one time that he did kind of really make that self like, you know, I've got these great powers. I'm going to look out for number one. And it blows up in his face like there is a learned nature to his morality it's not just i am inherently good it is i know what happens when you're not yeah yeah he we'll talk about it but yeah obviously he he has to like we said he pays a big price uh in in this movie and in other iterations of the character that is in that is central that is a core principle of this character um Getting sort of back to where we normally what we normally do in this podcast, we usually talk about our personal connection to the character. We've already done that, uh, copy and paste from the Spider Verse episode, um, so we can get straight into the the production here. 
which is an interesting one. I this one all just like X Men. Uh, dates back to the 80s when they were first trying to make it and it, another one where the rights to it went through a whole bunch of hands uh mostly starting with canon films and uh canon films uh the only word to describe what they make is schlock so if you listen to <laughs> if you listen to a bad movie podcast your your how did this get made uh, and similar shows uh chances are there's going to be uh, by volume a good amount of uh, of canon films in that mix. And what was really interesting to me was the reason they didn't end up making it was because Superman 3 and 4 were duds, and which they actually – they made those movies. And that made them reduce the budget for their planned Spider-Man film. And then the writers and directors signed on at the time said, yeah, we can't – we can't even we can't do that for this minimal budget. It was like five or ten million dollars or something, which even in uh, the eighties is not enough uh, to to make a movie like this that you would need. Um, the script went through a million hands. Notably, uh, James Cameron had a crack at it, and uh, his his contributions. Uh, he's he's not credited on this film, but some of those contributions remain. Uh, in particular, the organic web shooters that get uh, right. Joked on a lot. Uh, those are those were Cameron's idea. I I don't know why. I only assume it was maybe to just simplify the con the character, so we didn't have to worry about him fabricating uh, web slinging material. Or, or the yeah, uh, it's like something that themselves. you do is like a, a three panel montage in a comic of you've already established this kid as a brilliant scientist. And then just, you know, it was one of those things that's very easy in comics because he's like, you know, like, oh, and I developed these, you know engineering feats in my you know little mm-hmm. uh hovel bedroom in my uh elderly aunt and uncle's home in queens um it was always interesting to me reading the stories back then why stan made the choice to have them be mechanical instead of organic i remember that there was such an uproar when uh, the the choice to make them organic came out, and it was that it was he wasn't going to have built them, and you know comic fanboys were just as they are wont to do, were just bemoaning the fact that it's like you don't understand the nature of this character, and you've undermined his scientific genius and everything. And it's like you've streamlined the story. I think that's exactly the reasoning behind it. I never understood why Stan added this extra step to have him you're you've already had him undergo all these changes to give him all of these other spider abilities right he's got Why magic on powers one particular he can't have one. one more yeah yeah right. it's like no no, no 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 but having him shoot webs from any part of his body that is a step too far my friend <laughs> therefore true believer he shall <laughs> invent this revolutionary <laughs> device in his little lab up in his room, uh, which, like, I love. I think that, you know, like, that's so Silver Age that this 15-year-old kid living, you know, is they they can't, they can barely afford to pay the mortgage on the house. But he's apparently able to scrounge materials together to make the most revolutionary uh, technological advance. Uh, and, you know, and... And then his idea is, I'm going to go and get rich 
uh, wrestling. Because that's from the comics. That's origi- that is entirely originally from the comics. The, uh, the whole wrestling thing. And not, I'm going to go and patent this revolutionary new design of device. And make a bajillion dollars. Yeah. No, no, no. Let me go get in a <laughs> cage match. With Crusher Hogan or Bonesaw or whoever the hell he's in the ring with in whatever version. I'm going to go make a few thousand dollars wrestling <laughs> instead of... It's, I mean, you know, it's... And why, that kind by, of by the just, way, why wrestling is a sport either. It's like, why do I have to get my clock cleaned? I could go compete as a gymnast when nobody's trying to beat me up and clean up every gold medal that there is. But nope, he'll take the hard yeah. road and get beaten up with a chair. I think wrestling was like big, uh, starting to you know make it big, especially like amateur touring circuit shows, like the the kind where you would be able to have audience members, you know, like you know, yeah, okay, I'll jump in and you know last for you know, three minutes, whatever the case may be. Um, and I always thought it was sort of to help justify the costume. And then when I actually went back and read Amazing Fantasy number 15 as a kid, he's not even wearing the costume when he's in the ring. Like, it's him in some, like, sweatpants and a, and a pullover, and he's used the webbing to cover his head. Like, that's his mask, is just this, like, gray webbing over his face, which I'm like, I don't know that he'd actually be able to breathe through it. It's the kind of thing that, you know... Stan and Steve weren't given a lot of thought to at the time, but it was a even beyond the uh, the preliminary version of the costume. We see him in the cage match in this film. If you go back and read Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, and I highly recommend uh, that you do if you haven't before out there, gentle reader. Uh, it's like he's wearing his pajamas, like not even colorful pajamas. It's like he's. We're in, uh, like, scrubs or just something, just the blandest outfit. There's no color to it whatsoever. Um, and I was just like, well, you had the opportunity here to, like, justify why he then has this uh, colorful costume. But he winds up getting it later because the uh, there's a whole thing with where, like, the wrestling thing actually sort of takes off and he actually has a mini-career in the comics. In Amazing Fantasy number 15, which is not a lengthy... It's not even the only story in that issue. Because Amazing Fantasy was an anthology book. So it's only, like, I think... It's not even ten pages, I don't think. But his actual career as a, you know, sort of athletic spectacle actually goes on for quite a bit. Like, he makes his first big splash in the wrestling ring, but then he goes on and makes, you know, television appearances. He's on, you know, late-night TV doing, you know, stupid human tricks, you know, kind of stuff. And at Hmm. that point is when he then starts putting on the more colorful costume and, you know, discovers he can't really cash the checks uh, that he made um, because nobody will... You know, because uh, they're all made out to Spider-Man. <laughs> and so he can't, like, that's the big stumbling block for him, is he can't, you know, cash the big paycheck that uh, he made. Um, and then all the stuff happens with the robber, and he, you know, doesn't stop him, and Uncle Ben, and sadness. Um, 
and then discovering is like, oh no, it's him. What did I do? But we'll get yeah, we'll, we'll get more into that. Yeah. But yeah, we'll in, a, in a very roundabout way, I've you know I've diverged way off the point. Uh, but yeah, organic web shooters made all the sense in the world to me. Um, it's it's a great streamline. It's you immediately fold it into his story. Um, it makes for some really great metaphors uh, throughout all of the films um, <laughs> that his body is going through all these changes and happens to shoot out this weird sticky substance. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking get... about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm talking about webbing. I'm talking about organic webbing. Webbing, of course. Sure. Uh, a few other points I wanted to talk about with the with the production side of this. Um, so, yes, it changed hands a bunch of times. Of course, it eventually ended up back at Sony uh, after a series of machinations that are too complicated to to discuss. Um, but I thought it would be – rather than talking about the individual bits of the uh, making the movie, um, talk about some of the people responsible for it. So the primary credited screenwriter is David Kep. David Kep is responsible for some really great stuff and some really terrible stuff. Uh, on the great side, he did Jurassic Park. Uh, which is you know, an impeccable script, I think. Uh, on the other Agreed. hand, he did Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is... Which I like. Uh, I like. I don't hate that movie as much as other people. <laughs> I actually, I like that one better than Temple of Doom, honestly. But it's not It's great. not good. Um, I would put, I mean, on the... Te- I would put on the... Te- not to, you know, pile on to Mr. Cap at all, but, uh, you know, as long as we're talking Jurassic World movies... He also wrote The Lost World, which, oof. Yeah, that's got some rough stuff in it, too. Um, but he also wrote Carlito's he, Way. Yeah. He friggin' that's wrote Carlito's bad. Way, man. Like, that is a great movie. That's pretty good. Um, there was also, uh, so he's not credited on the, as a screenwriter on this, but Alvin Sargent, who would go on to right. write Spider-Man 2, 3, and then uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 1. Uh, he has, uh, I believe, at least one, if not two, Academy Awards for screenwriting to his credit. Um, he did a pass on the dialogue here uh, that I think helps a bunch. I'm not sure, you know, there's there are, as we said, bits of the dialogue that neither of us are fans of. Not sure who's responsible for what. Um, right. So, uh, but the, they are, uh, that is your, your writing team. And I do think, for, for me at least, the things that in the movie that I end up not liking are script things, not so much director or actor things. Um, and we should talk about that Agreed. director because, yeah, th- this again went to, there were a number of different directors that were approached about this and it ultimately went to Sam Raimi. And this is by, this series is by far his most commercial hits, his biggest stuff. Um, he is about to return to superhero with uh, Doctor Strange 2. But I thought it would be worthwhile to sort of talk about what makes Raimi's directing style unique. Uh, well, but, and let's also yeah. acknowledge the fact that this is not Raimi's first uh, superhero film. It is he not. He's also the director is... of the seminal genre feat, Darkman. Yeah. Darkman Dark is like, it's almost like the uh, his uh, audition for this. It's like, yeah, hey, I, I can make a superhero movie. I already did. You know, I, I can prove it. But in a way, I don't see a whole lot of um, connective tissue between Darkman and Spider-Man because they're tonally so different. I actually see more connective tissue between something like Army of Darkness 
and Evil Dead 2, which are more like quippy and kind of dynamic. Like D- Darkman's a little more of just a freak show. And uh, his directing style is kind of known for these zoom ins, these like kind of crazy camera moves and like almost like live action Ren and Stimpy levels of like craziness that are like, this is like if someone went to him and said, could you make, do what you do, but just make it palatable to the masses. This is what you get. Like Spider-Man is a perfect like version of like, it's just enough Raimi to still be Raimi, but not so much that it alienates the, you know, the average person. Yeah. And I think, you know, that there is a level in all of his films of just even in those earliest examples, it feels so renegade. And so, like, I'm a guy with a camera just doing what I find fun, making movies with my friends, on shoestring budgets, running a friend's cabin, and, you know, like, casting people I know and people I, you know, met in college and and my brother. Uh, and he kind of brings that to really everything, I feel like, for better or worse in some cases, but, uh, like, everything still feels like... He's never... I can't think of a movie of his where I feel like he was like, well, let me be mainstream in my style. Mainstream in tone, certainly. Mainstream in content, certainly. But in style, like, those, you know, weird zooms and whip pans and, you know, like, just wonderfully weird angles he it always just feels and it it carries that sort of creative joy and fun through it all um you know the ones where he feels most hampered um by the producing side of things the studio side of things the trying to pander to the audience side of things uh, are the ones where you feel that joy and that fun kind of tamped down and it loses that kind of renegade spirit and you wind up not having as much fun or it's like overcompensating. It's like kind of false fun or he like overcompensates with say a dance sequence um, to try and break those studio constraints. Um not thinking of anything in particular. Uh, but here, I, th- I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It feels very much like those earliest films on display. Like, you know, definitely not the horror content, but that just, that maverick spirit, that like, you know, indie film kind of mentality. It's like, you know, and that was, I think, we, we and we talked a little bit about this, I think, uh, on X-Men as well, um, that there was this mentality and I think it's uh, even carried over into the modern day of having, you know, smaller indie established filmmakers come on to these larger superhero projects and bring those sensibilities, bring those kind of not only style, but, uh, you know, ability to think on their feet, ability to adapt and, you know, know how to get the most uh, bang for their buck, literally. Um, and you wind up with, Something that's just st- 
stirring here. You know, it's it's horrifying when you see it in Evil Dead, and you know, horrifying and hilarious when you see it in Army of Darkness. But here, it's just so much fun and so earnest, and just takes you on this ride, both emotionally and visually. And you know, yeah, it's, it's hokey in parts, but that's kind of rainy. Even at his darkest, he's at his best when he's kind of hokey. The word that came to my mind was Gonzo filmmaking. Like he's he's closer to something like that. You know, like mm-hmm. you said, these sort of really bold, unique, distinctive moves that, in a way, sort of translate a comic, uh, you know, a, a two dimensional comic book into a movie without literally, you know, putting panels and you know stuff into it. Um, there, there's something about it that is heightened in a way and is uh, you know just uniquely his. It's hard to imitate, and I, I really think it, it sets that tone for this movie and its two sequels. And it's you know like you wouldn't have the you could have handed this script to a different director and it would have been fine. It would have been entertaining, but I don't think it would have it wouldn't have vaulted ahead to where this is in like the the canon of superhero movies. Um, Yeah, I don't think it would have captured people's imaginations as much as it did. And, uh, you know, where they people keep coming back to it and they get thrilled when it uh, is showing uh, when characters from this movie perhaps show up in other movies somewhere down the line. It gets a very, you know, we should. uh, Yeah, I should have mentioned this at the top Uh, full. We are giving ourselves full license to talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, because I thought about what's the Venn diagram of people who would listen to this podcast and have not seen that movie. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's just two circles that are two concentric circles. Um, so I mean, I've been, know, I was, I was dancing yeah. around. I was trying to be very, very subtle there and not mention a movie. Yeah, no, I know. I, <laughs> it's, uh, if, if you haven't seen it, it's a delight. It's out on video. You can see it anytime. Pause this. Go watch it. Have a good time. But I just want to make sure we can mention the connections to that movie because there are certainly Absolutely. plenty. Um, when, you know, when appropriate. We're, we're going to try and focus on this movie in particular. But I'm sure it will come up here and there uh, for, yeah. for reasons And I think uh, to, to kind of the point of the um, kind of more... And I, I, I hate using uh, this term because it always feels pejorative uh, when people talk about it in terms of film. But uh, the the more comic booky elements that uh, that Raimi brings into it, I think really cracks the code. And you know, I, I don't think they're handled perfectly um, all the time, or even necessarily most of the time. But I think, given what we had with uh, what we've already talked about with the first X-Men, with Blade, even going back to Burton's Batman, and this kind of like, oh, you know, superhero movies, in order to be, you know, successful and popular, like, they really have to be more grounded, and they have to be darker, and they have to... And really, Raimi kind of popped the bubble, I feel like, on that sort of commonly accepted myth uh, within Hollywood. Because it's just like, hey... Here is a guy in red and blue tights fighting a guy in a green metal suit of armor for whatever reason that was done. Um, but <laughs> it, it makes for spectacle. It makes for so much colorful uh, just visuals even beyond the way that it's shot. Just the very nature of the fact that 
he presented these things as they had been drawn. And he didn't do it in a way that was like, hey, isn't this stupid? Hey, isn't this juvenile? Remember this thing you liked when you were a kid? We're going to go ahead and take all the piss out of it. You know, he had he fun put with all that, the piss without having it. fun at its expense. <laughs> and yeah. I think that opened up everything that we've seen since. I mean, you know, the, the fact that we've gotten so m- many more colorful heroes uh, in the MCU and in, you know, superhero films in general uh, since then. You know, no one's trying to tone it down. No one's trying to go like, you know, like, yeah, you can be, you know, super dark and gritty with, with characters that that works with. Uh, you know, uh, I just saw the Batman for the second time uh, a couple of weekends ago. And that's Batman. Like, Batman is dark. Batman is gritty. Batman is, you know, noir and... uh pulp and spider-man is not that like you can tell darker stories with the character but he is by nature and by design a more colorful character a more joyful character and the fact that this movie really sold those visuals in a way that other superhero movies that had excelled and you know kind of didn't um just immediately dismissed the subject matter, had always had that darker element to it. Other than Donner's Superman, I feel like. Uh, or you had, on the other end of the spectrum, ones that didn't take it seriously at all, viewed the subject matter as stupid, thought the audience would think it was stupid, um, and just fell flat because of that. I don't think any of those films... I mean, other than their kind of campy nature, people who enjoy camp, which there is a certain element of the audience who does, and there's plenty of material out there for them. But Raimi found the way to marry the fun of the genre without having to take it too seriously. I think he was the first one. And the balance isn't always right, like I said. But he was the first one to even strive to portray that balance and to execute that balance on film. And I don't think you'd have the level of the superhero renaissance uh, that you have in film today, uh, if not for what Raimi did here. Absolutely not. Uh, But we also should give credit to the cast, which is phenomenal. Uh, In fact, with... So Kirsten Dunst was nominated for an Oscar this year, which means that every single one of the principal cast of this movie either was nominated for or won an Oscar. Tobey Maguire, uh, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Cliff Robertson, Rosemary Harris, Willem Dafoe, and J.K. Simmons, all of them Oscar Oscar nominees or winners. So you talk about a murderer's row of people to make oh, this yeah. work. And even then, and even amongst them, there are still lines of dialogue that I think are go over like a lead balloon. Um, there, you know, there's only so much you can do, but they are great. And like Willem Dafoe in particular, um, his, oh man, his, he's yeah, just I mean, having that performance, so much fun with this. I mean, it's so good that they couldn't help, but even though his character was dead, they had to bring him back for two and three. Yeah. They had to have him show up in some way. Uh, which is crazy. And, you know, you look at what he did with it in No Way Home, 
And it's just, it's like, you know, you were joking about the mask that he has to wear as the Green Goblin, this, you know, goofy green thing. And it's like, no, the the stuff he does with his face, his, you know, yeah. weird Willem Dafoe face is astonishing. You watch him like, you think about like that scene in uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, where you have Gollum going back and forth, that like famous scene. And it's like, that's pretty good. Look at this, though. Like with, with a human yeah. face. There's no digital manipulation. There's no cutting in between. And he did all of that, like, him on both sides of the mirror in that, you know, first kind of exchange that he has between himself as Goblin and Norman. You know, they did Mm -hmm. that. You know, it's edited together, of course, but he did both parts every take. Like, and that's commitment. And would just, like, and snap back and forth in between the two of them. In the same way that Circus, you know, that's a really great example. Because he did that exactly the way that, you know, Circus did uh, with Gollum and Smeagol in that scene. Um, and he's just so fantastic at it. And I remember, I was just talking with, um, I'm going to give a little plug uh, to a couple of friends of mine. Um, they, uh, they just launched a new podcast uh, called Bloodsuckers. Uh, if y'all like uh, vampire movies... Uh, as for instance, if you really enjoyed our, uh, our blade episode, uh, please go give them some love, but they recently just covered, uh, shadow of the vampire. And I remember hearing oh, yeah. around the time that that, uh, came out, the fact that, uh, they had offered, and this might all be apocryphal. I've, I've never really hunted down for confirmation. I just like the story. And I've heard an interview where Willem Dafoe kind of, Alluded to the fact that it might be true. And I like that it's true. Uh, so I accept it as a personal truth. But that they had originally offered the role uh, of Norman Osborn to John Malkovich. And that Malkovich had turned it down and was talking about it on set. And was just like, yes, I would never do a movie like that. It is beneath me to when I could be doing high art. And Willem's like, oh, fuck it, I'll do it. That sounds great. I love Spider-Man. Like, got his agents on the phone and got in touch. And they were like, you know... Uh, that's that's the the version I choose uh, to believe at the very least. Because uh, I think he's so perfect. And I, I love John Malkovich as an actor. And there was talk and of him... And he'd be great. Uh, and if he had done point, it, he would have been awesome. Yeah. And there was even talk, I think, at one point of... If this, if this version of the franchise had gone on, uh, him coming in as Vulture, um, because he had <laughs> seen what the film had become and what he, you know, had passed on. And he was like, oh, no, wait, this is actually great fun. Let me, I'm sorry, this is my really bad uh, Malkovich impression, it, but it's I love doing good. it. Um, and then, uh, but no, I mean, Defoe is so amazing and he's so just iconically tied to this character now, uh, in my mind, no matter what, like the, you know, kind of costuming, uh, for the actual, like, you know, goblin might be, um, I think he's just so iconic in this role. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, Donner's Superman and Burton's Batman before, like this is on level for me with Hackman as Luthor, which is not my favorite Luthor, but I love what Hackman does because he just, he Hackman's it up and that's some good times to see on film. And Nicholson's Joker, which, not my favorite Joker, but I really love what Nicholson did with that part. And especially when I first saw it as a kid, he will always have that kind of iconic tie. You know, yeah, you've had Hamill since then. Yeah, you've had Ledger since then. Yeah, you've had Phoenix since then. But, uh, 
Nicholson really nails it. And whoever else you have step into the goblin role in the future in whatever iteration, whatever branch of the multiverse we explore and that Norman drops some green goop into his veins in Defoe has like the stamp. That's the bar to clear. Even if someone else clears it, this is the bar. Defoe is Osborne. He is yeah. just phenomenal. For me, he's the MVP of the movie among many, but he Agreed. is, he is so good. Um, uh, a couple of little things just to mention before we get into the movie proper, uh, the music is, uh, the score is Danny Elfman. And I think this is one of his best scores. I actually think it's a little, uh, it gets a little underrated, uh, in my way of, of thinking. Uh, I, I mean, I don't envy his position of saying like, Hey, you were asked to do the score for Batman. Like you're coming in after probably I think uh, John Williams' Superman score is probably never going to be equal in terms of how like superlative it is. But man, the Batman score comes close. It's so good at doing something so different. Yeah. And then to have to go to to poor Danny Elfman and go, "Hey, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Top yourself." Um, I think the score is really good. I don't. I, I just. I don't think it is as good as the Batman score because it's so hard to top that. But it's very, very good, and such to the point that when it, when like strains of it came in in No Way Home, I was like, "Oh yes, you know that's good to hear you, old friend." Um, I think really I was definitely of one of the emotion. people who uh, kind of underrated it and undersold it uh, when I first saw the film. Um, I was kind of, I feel like I was kind of burned out, uh, on Elfman as a composer at that point. Um, well, he does have a, a trick, you know, he does, he is kind of a, not to say he's a one trick pony, but he's like a three trick pony. Yeah. But I mean like, but those are some really fucking good tricks. Um, yeah. and so I think I went into it and also, like you said, you know, holding it to that standard and, you know, and his theme for Batman 89 is just, is so iconic in my mind. And holding it up to the standard of, you know, Williams. And you have an iconic theme for Superman, an iconic theme for Batman. And I went and saw Spider-Man and, you know, kind of in my head, naively thinking like, it's like, well, there's not a recognizable Spider-Man theme here. And like, and of course now, you know, the thing that makes those themes iconic is the fact that we hear them over and over and over again. And that they get so tied to the character. And like you said, it comes in in No Way Home and you're just like, you know, oh... Oh, that's that's it. That's it right there. And he does like I actually I think overall speaking now, you know, maybe not wiser but certainly older. I think I do like his score for this. Um and it plays around a little bit like Batman is so sweeping. And I think also the fact that you've got Elfman's score competing with uh Prince's soundtrack in the film, both of which I think are amazing, but like it's the dichotomy that kind of makes them work and also undercuts both of them. Here it's just all Elfman all the time. Um, but it doesn't feel like, you know, it do doesn't have that kind of Burtony, uh, kind of big top feel to it. Uh, you know, there's not that, you know, kind of strident nature to it. It's like, that's a, that when it starts out with that, just like, you know, that little, you know, that, that timpani that just like, da, 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 da. it's like, like I'm doing it such disservice right now, but, uh, it's like that always stirs something in me. And then you feel the strings come in and it's, it's very swelling and it kind of takes you along, which I think like 
the main Batman theme does really well, but I think the overall score of the film for Spider-Man, I think is more even and consistently good than Batman, which goes from, oh my God, there are these amazing themes here to, okay, and this is, uh, this is also very good and happening. Um, in my mind, at least you're right. I, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I also, one last musical thing, uh, if not for this film, we would not have gotten the uh, the Weird Al song "Ode to a Superhero," in which he retells <laughs> the whole movie via uh, parodying "Piano Man" by Billy Joel. So uh, 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 the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, so <laughs> had to mention it, and uh, and actually, so really, the MVP uh, of Spider Man is Weird Al. Well, as he is of all things, but. If you want to feel old, by the way, Jordan, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of this movie. It's uh, It came out oh, yeah. in May of 2002. Uh, and uh, one last little production thing, of course, before we get started, is we have to talk about uh, the teaser trailer that had to be buried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if you don't the, know, uh, the, if you're... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, you, if you're too young and you don't know, there was a teaser trailer for this movie in which Spider-Man webs up a helicopter between the Twin Towers. Uh, As I mentioned, this movie came out in 2002, so you can guess what happened in 2001 that made them retire that teaser. And I I assume that footage was edited out of the movie. I don't know if that was ever meant to be in the movie anyway, or if it was just a teaser, but... I think it was uh, just for the yeah. teaser. As far as I, as far as I've read, as far as I know, and uh, the things I have read and know are very limited. I will admit, uh, but I b- do believe that was just for uh, the teaser, and it was only released, as I recall. And again, this is you know over twenty years ago now from my adult brain, uh, but it was just. It wasn't that long before uh, 9-11 that the teaser aired. Um, Because they had to pull it quick. And there were like... They had just put up posters where they had iconic uh, New York skyline elements reflected in Spider-Man's... The lenses of his eyes, including the Twin Towers. And they had to scrap all of those posters as well. And like reprint all posters and, you know, pull that. So I don't think there was ever any footage, but it definitely, their marketing, um, and this is by no means me saying that this was the worst consequence of uh, that horrible day. Um, But uh, the marketing department, I think, had to just rethink and, you know, re-shuffle a whole lot of things. Um, that feels like it's got. I mean, that like that was put in there after nine eleven. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly hits differently. Um, it's possible it was in there already, but man, that you know, it sure seems like yeah, we need a little more pick me up here. And I think one of the reasons this movie was such a hit, um, if you look at there, there's a bunch of movies that came be, after nine eleven, leading up through this one, all of which were these monster hits. Uh, so you have um. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. 
you have uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings in 2001. You have this in, you know, fairly early in 2002. Like there's just all these movies that is like people, I think, just wanted to feel good. And you literally have a, a red, white and blue hero here uh, defending New York. And there was there's something about the like. I think the mood of the country, like we, you kind of needed this. You needed a gutsy little kid from Queens to kind of say, you know, pick everybody up and say, like, yeah, I got you. You know, there's, there's, I'm a hero to protect you guys. And um, uh, you're definitely right. I believe there is, there are shots where they had to edit the two towers out of the footage because if you know New York geography, like, yeah, they should be there in the background, you know, but they're not. So, um. With all that production stuff, we should just uh, get right into talking about the movie itself. What do you say? Let's dive into it. Okay. Uh, So uh, we open with our intro, which is just kind of red and blue screens with webs all over them uh, and, uh, you know, names of people and such. uh, And... uh, the the iconic Elfman score, but buried in the web stuff, I do like that. Like every once in a while, you get a flash of like kind of an image of something made out of webs, whether it's Spider Man's face or the Green Goblin's mask. Like it gives you a little taste. Uh, this is done obviously to much better effect in two and three, where they sort of use it as a previously on. But uh, right. here it's just you know it's just a, an intro, uh, fairly long actually. We I watched this with my daughter. And uh, she said, like, Dad, why is the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie? And I was like, no, no, no. This is just the opening <laughs> credits. <laughs> they are long, sweetie. They, these are long opening credits. Um, yeah. But anyway, we get past I that. I think uh, yeah. they, they share a lot in common with uh, kind of the openings of the uh, the various X-Men films where you're sort of being swept through this very early 2000s uh, CG landscape. Um, with you know names and effects, and oh, here it's webs. There it's you know the double helix of a of a DNA strand. Um, but I think you know there was definitely, in my mind at least, an element of oh, hey, it worked over there. Let's do it over here for our you know kind of opening credits. And I don't know why they're that long. Uh, they really do feel, and I'm not someone who. You know, I'm someone who sits through the credits at the end. Like, even if I'm not, like, reading every single name. Like, I like to sit through them and, you know, like, enjoy the music and really take things in and respect all the people who made the film. But, like, opening credits, I'm like, oh, God, let's just get into the movie already. <laughs> uh, we, the first thing we hear is Peter's narration. And he says, you know, who am I? Uh, you know, did you might think uh, if somebody told you I'm just an average, ordinary guy or, you know, somebody lied. Uh, and this will come back kind of, he, he only narrates this bit at the beginning and a little at the end. So it's, it's just a bookend the movie, but you know, giving you that sense of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to tell you the story basically of how I became Spider-Man. Uh, but there's yeah. a little bit of like, there's, it's ominous. Like the way he does it, it's a little more ominous. Like it sounds like, Oh, something bad's about to happen to me. Um, which is sort of, you know, I guess that is true that bad things are going to happen to him, but also something really amazing is going to happen to him. Um, but it sets a tone that you know, we should expect that this is not going to be a totally happy story. And, and I like that. Uh, we see him trying to catch the bus. He cannot. Um, the, you know, it's not even stopping for him. The bus driver has no idea. And uh, MJ, uh, Mary Jane, played by uh, Kirsten Dunst, uh, best known at this point, I think, for be, uh, being a little kid in uh, Interview with a Vampire and Jumanji. I think it probably yes. bigger hits for her at this point. Um, she's the one who gets the bus driver to stop for him, uh, which is a kindness. 
uh, letting us know that like, hey, she, you know, she's a decent person, uh, even though she's going to give off signs of being kind of the bitchy popular girl, at least at first. Uh, but he pops on the bus and they're off to the science lab. Well, it's like the fact that even it's not even so much that the bus driver like doesn't see him. You see him like, you know, glance over in the mirror and like and laugh at this poor nerdy kid who's on, like he's bullying this kid along with like all the kids in the back. Like Mary Jane is the only decent person on this bus, including the grown up. And I think that just speaks well of her. And also, uh, you know, gives us a world where, you know, it's not a case of like, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, kids will be kids and, you know, eventually we mature and grow up. It's just like, no, adults are pretty shitty too. Um, and, you know, this, you know, th- this poor kid who is really an or like he's being raised by relatives, but he's an orphan. You know, this is this is what happens if uh, if Harry Potter gets left with loving uh, relatives and uh, gets a spider bite instead of a an owl. Um, but yeah, he's just perennially bullied. Like that is, I think there was um, there's a story in a few of the comics where either directly in an alternate reality or. Peter meets a kid like him where, and I'm amazed it doesn't get uh, portrayed more often or explored more often, given some of the things uh, in the zeitgeist, uh, especially back then. But, you know, Peter is, man, like we talk about bullying now and kind of the effects of it. You know, it's it's played kind of for laughs here and there. Uh, throughout the movie, but I'm like, you really see, especially once he gets the powers, uh, Peter's anger and the, the fight later on, we'll get to that, you know, scene, but you know, this poor kid, you know, like is, you know, one bad day away from, you know, I'm not going to say necessarily that he was, you know, going to go shoot up the school or anything, but you know, he's just he seemed more likely he'd harm himself, you know? Yeah. If he didn't have just that loving environment at home, and certainly there are a number of kids who have either harmed others or themselves where, you know, even their home situation uh, may have been uh, better than most, but, you know, they just couldn't take the needling and the endless harassment. And, you know, and sometimes they were just broken inside from other things that happened, but Peter has every reason in the world to be angry, to be sullen. I think we saw that a lot more, uh, in Andrew Garfield's version, but in this one, there's definitely, uh, throughout, we see a number of signs of the anger, but here he's just like, you know, Hey, come on guys. Just like, you know, he's trying to, you know, he's just trying to get by. He's trying to keep his head down and get along with things. But like he still finds joy in science and in photography. And he still has friends uh, in Harry. Um, there's something inherently good about long before he becomes a superhero. We see that there's something in him that, like I said before, keeps picking himself up. When everybody else is shoving him down, when everybody else is keeps driving past on the bus, 
he's the guy who's going to keep chasing after it. He doesn't just give up and say, it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to go home and skip school. Well, that field trip, uh, those kids suck. I don't like them. I, I can't get on the bus. I can't catch a fair break. He keeps chasing after the bus. He keeps, because he wants to go see these exhibits. You know, this is what he loves. He loves learning. He loves science. And, you know, and he's getting to take pictures for the paper. He loves photography. You know, it's, these are iconic elements. We're just getting to know him so quickly in these first moments. Um, and immediately building empathy with us too. Cause we're like, he's like, who are you going to root for? You know, the assholes on the school bus or the poor underdog chasing it. You're always going to root for the underdog. Like it's, it's a, you know, status game. And they do a lot to kind of, you know, that segues nicely into our next scene here between Norman and Harry, where Norman is you know, basically telling Harry, look, you got to make this work as a student at this school because you flunked out everywhere else. We can see that, you know, Norman is this very rich, successful guy. And, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't try to conceal the fact that he thinks his son is a colossal disappointment. And we see the toll that that takes on him. You know, he wants so desperately to have his father's approval, um, but he just doesn't have, you know, he's not the genius that Peter is. You know, he just doesn't have that in him. And, you know, that that inferiority complex, like you, you're watching him, you know, for, for Harry, this is, you know, we don't know it until Spider-Man 3, but this is a superhero or supervillain origin story for him, too. And yeah. we see it right here. Like, you know, he is, you know, baking into his son, the you know, this kind of resentment and anger. Um, and, you know, people in positions of power with inferiority complexes is... Uh, as we've seen, can lead to some bad shit. Uh, anyway, yeah. Um, but um, I mean, like, and it really is like that perfect foil to Peter because he's just that that flipped nature. Everything we just described Peter as, you know, uh, Harry is you know popular at school. He's well liked. He's you know, one of the cool kids. Um, and at, but at home, he feels you know isolated. He feels unloved. Um, you know, he's Got that high status, but we also see here that, you know, sometimes things aren't always what they seem. And they really drove it home, I think, in an interesting way. One of the changes they made from the source material is traditionally in the comics, uh, Harry is not, you know, he's certainly not James Franco. He's not a good-looking kid. He's not, you know, uh, you know, athletic or, you know, cool or anything. He's just this kind of dweeby guy who doesn't really only reason people, you know, or at least he thinks the only reason people hang out with him is because of his daddy's money. Um, and, and there's really Harry, if I'm that. remembering correctly, Harry in the comics doesn't even, isn't even present, uh, in high school. He doesn't show up as a character until, uh, Peter's in college. Uh, and he and Peter hit it off then um and sort of in this sort of tight-knit group with the two of them uh gwen stacy mj eventually um <laughs> flash thompson uh who we'll i'm sure get to uh here in a little bit but um yeah making him a much more you know cool and popular and handsome kid really drives home that sort of flip status with peter who is that, you know, dweeby, unpopular, uh, 
you know, nebbish of a kid who, you know, has thankfully been, you know, kind of taken under Harry's protective wing. Um, you know, this is, you know, we, we've already seen MJ come to his rescue in one sense uh, as we come to understand Peter and Harry's dynamic. We understand that they've kind of been coming to each other's rescue. Um, Peter helping Harry out with his academics, Harry helping Peter out by shielding him from some of the bullying. Um, and just immediately again, it's that, you know, great, you know, cinematic shorthand. We understand the nature of this friendship. We understand the nature of this character pretty early on. And, you know, like you said, uh, under seeing this scene between him and Norman, we see already those elements being baked in and the things that are going to like, here we're getting a glimpse of, not only the things that are good about Harry, but the bad things that are being planted in him that will bear wicked fruit in films to come. Uh, this leads into uh, the the meeting between Harry, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Norman and Peter, as the three of them kind of talk outside of uh, this lab in, at Columbia University. And I like this lab, because museum, can... lecture hall, <laughs> your, your basic catch-all uh, field trip location for secret superhero origin stories. Sure, uh, but uh, we see that like already there's this jealousy that like Norman takes a shine to Peter that you know yeah. he doesn't give to his own son, uh, and as Peter kind of fanboys out about Norman's. Uh, technical accomplishments he says the very much because Norman line. is something of a scientist himself that's right uh, I'm not sure why that line got so damn memed but it just it just did um, it's a fine delivery of a line uh, to the point where he has yeah, to say it again I don't, know. I, I don't understand the, uh, the, the the logic of memes I, I love the line I just like it because it means that I can go and find wonderful gifts of uh, Willem Dafoe saying that line and it's just like yeah he's Something of a scientist himself. I, yeah, I don't understand it either. But sure, give me more Willem. Give me more yeah. excuses to see uh, Willem on my computer screen. Please. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we, I like that the movie goes moves in for the spider bite fairly quickly. We don't waste a lot of time before it happens. But basically, right. he, you know, he's bumming around the, the, this lab on the field trip with uh, Harry... Uh, one of the things we note that are, is notable here is that he has this conversation with Harry where he says a bunch of technical stuff about spiders. Harry will then repeat that to MJ to try and look cool and smart, which is shitty because Harry knows full well that Peter has a crush on her. Uh, Peter takes some pictures of her. And while he is uh, for the school paper, uh, heralding his future career as a journalistic photographer. And while he's doing that, a, uh, a, a genetically reengineered red and blue spider slinks down from the ceiling and bites Peter on the hand. Uh, very, I think this is a fairly efficient scene. There's not a lot to say about it. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, man, he's got to get bit by the spider to turn into Spider-Man. We got no movie. So let's go. Yeah, he's there. He's a science geek. He's a, in the comics, it's a, uh, it's not even a field trip. It's an exhibition of uh, radioactivity. And it just so happens like, you know, and so he just goes on his own. Uh, just to see it, just because he's like, you know, he loves science so much that he wants to see this demonstration. 
And the spider happens to drop down through the radioactive beam and gets irradiated and then blah, blah, blah. Here we take a little more of a page out of uh, what was at the time a very recent uh, run of Spider-Man comics. Uh, the the Ultimate line, which would ultimately huh, uh, introduce us to Miles Morales years later. But in those books, it was kind of reconfigured with the backstory to make the spider not irradiated, but genetically engineered as it is here uh, to pull it more into line of the sort of uh, genetic and cloning fears of the early 21st century, as opposed to the fear of the atom that dominated uh, the cold war era when Spider-Man was first developed. Um, so it's just it's always interesting to me the way that uh, these sort of aspirational comics reflect our own fears back at us, depending on the era that they're in, um, and then make them the core of what turns these superheroes into heroes. It's you know our fear internalized makes us stronger. Kind of idea is always how I've viewed those things um though i find it very interesting that in this highly secure lab where they are doing this cutting edge uh genetic engineering work that uh you know one of the spiders can so easily break out and uh when it's pointed out to them that one has they're just like ah, someone probably just took it out for some tests it's it's that's that's fine nothing Nothing could go wrong. There's no liability here for having a genetically engineered spider on the loose, unaccounted well, that, for. And also, also, like once Spider-Man starts swinging around the city and becomes famous, like nobody tries to duplicate this experiment. No one goes like, "Oh man, you know what? He was probably around those spiders we made. Let's make some more of those spiders." Like no one does it. Um, but well, uh, like the spider dies in the wrong. comics after it bites him, it like you know just curls like you know the radiation like kills it and it just like crumples up like the bite is its dying act. And here he flings it down and the spider just runs off and it's just like okay, cool. I guess there's just a genetically engineered spider running around and like who the fuck else did this thing bite and did they all get powers too? Like it's and why do they only a, make a one of them? Dangling plot web thread. I was going for something there. I don't know if it worked or not. No. Um, but yeah, that always kind of just like shakes it off, and he's like, just watches it run off, and like doesn't call out to anyone. Like, hey, that spider you all just said was missing just bit me and ran under that thing. Because of course, then it would be very easy to piece a secret identity together, but. It does. It's one of those just contrivances of early superhero films. It's like it would be an easy enough thing, I think, to say, like you know, have the spider get you know scooped back up. Have some you know, like one of the lab techs be like, "Oh, I found it over here," or have it die, or somebody steps on it, or you know, whatever the case may be. But it just runs off, uh, never to be heard from again. Uh. Let's talk about this glider demo where yes, uh, we cut to Oscorp. We cut to Oscorp. We understand that Oscorp is a, a military contractor. So we see the glider that Norman will later ride and a person wearing a version of that 
green goblin suit, the the glider suit that's not quite so um, samurai monster looking. And uh, <laughs> uh, we hear that you know they, they develop the super soldier serum that causes an eight hundred percent increase in strength. And Dr. Strom, uh, uh, Norman's colleague, tells the military brass touring the facility, uh, he lets slip that, you know, for some people, uh, it resulted in psychosis. And uh, so he thinks they should take the whole thing back to formula, which uh, Norman responds to, back to formula? Um, and we, we understand that, like, they're, the military is sort of choosing between this contract and something developed by Quest, one of the Oscorp's competitors, and that if uh, the military chooses this one, uh, or sorry, chooses Quest, then that will be financially devastating for Oscorp. I guess they put all their eggs in the glider basket. Yes, of course, and, uh, because that's, uh, that's how defense contractors work, is uh, <laughs> not not in diversifying, but... Um, interesting, uh, yeah, they, you know, they, they lose little, out on uh, one comic book yeah. Easter egg. Uh, yeah. Mendel Strom in the comics, eventually, he, you know, here he's a very, you know, kind of uh, low status, kind of, you know, fumbling uh, lab assistant type. Um, in the comics, he is uh, not only Norman's uh, business partner, but eventually becomes the villain Robot Master, um, who, as, uh, as his name implies, a more robotic form. And uh, he and uh, Norman have uh, quite a few rows uh, over the years um, in the the fallout of their uh, business relationship. So he uh, gets a bit of uh, comeuppance for some of his treatment. Or I guess preemptive comeuppance, since those stories happened first. I don't know how time works anymore. (laughs) Uh, It's a good scene because it lets you know that, like, you know, we want to believe that, like, there's good, kind-hearted Norman Osborn and, you know, the evil Green Goblin is sort of this separate entity. But Norman's not so great. Like, Norman Osborn is not a good guy. Uh, I remember from, like, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon where it was like, he wasn't always the Green Goblin, but, like, even when he was Norman Osborn, like, he's not tr- totally trustworthy. Like, he's, you know, he's still a billionaire industrialist type who's, you know, more yeah. interested in the bottom line. This is this is Tony Stark who never had his uh, come to Jesus moment. Yeah, I think he's worse than that. I mean, he's clearly you know he's irresponsible. That like, oh yeah, this formula drives it makes people super strong and insane. What could go wrong? Let's keep working on it. Um, <laughs> it was a very minor, like it was statistically insignificant uh, factor. I'm sure <laughs> it will never uh, come back to haunt him in any way. That's right. Uh, so we cut to Ben. Uh, Uncle Ben is changing a light bulb at the Parker homestead here. Uh, we hear that he's laid off and he's concerned about finding a new job because he's old and he's obsolete. Uh, he doesn't know how to work the computers that all the kids are working on these days. And, uh, you know, May is there to reassure him. Uh, Pete comes home. Uh, he's looking pretty peaked and just goes straight to sleep. And we get this, uh, you know, he passes out in slow motion. The bite on his hand is enormous. And we get this, like... CGI nightmare sequence of like spiders crawling along a DNA helix and then like replacing bits of it. So we understand that that's what's happening. His DNA is being rewritten by this spider bite. Yes. And, a nightmare uh, sequence scene. of a 90s screensaver, as I like to think of it. Uh, 
Yeah, I think this works because it's you know it's meant to be you know, silly. It's a dream. You know, it doesn't have to look perfect. Um, it's not literally, you know, I mean, that is what's happening to him is his DNA is being rewritten, but obviously not by teeny tiny little spiders crawling inside his uh, cells. But I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm OK with it. This is a very this reminds me of a similar sequence in uh, Dark Man where like Lee yeah, has a freak out. You know, it's it's the same trick, sort of a lot of flashes. Yeah, of, which is why I think, and I wonder if it's like intentional because it does feel very. Like even for a, a like an early two thousands film, this sequence in particular feels very like ninety CG, like the, like something out of you know Dark Man or you know, the Lawnmower Man or something where it's like mm-hmm. we haven't quite got the technology, but ooh, look at it! Um, you know, it, it does have a certain you know charm to it, but also just very much like this. Uh, this was clearly. Not where a lot of the film's budget went into, uh, <laughs> but it did proceed. Yeah, it did I, that did remind me uh, as he's heading upstairs. The a line I always, I still get a good chuckle out of because I love a good pun. Uh, as he's going up, and they ask him, uh, you know, if he wants a bite to eat before you know going to bed, and he, you know, of course, you know, quips back the line, uh, you know, no thanks, I already had a bite. Ah, spider bite. It works on a lot of levels. Really, At just the two. two. But yeah. but but two is more than one, and therefore it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it just always uh, makes me chuckle. I love it. And so we're about to. Well, this, this movie does a thing that a lot of think comic book movies do, which is where we pair the birth of the hero with the birth of the villain. Because uh, we're going to go to Oscorp, where you know we're late at night at Oscorp. And uh, Norman's going to run this test on himself, uh, as uh, all good scientists would do, uh, to prove that his serum works. So he has Strom do it. Uh, you know, he administers the the serum. Uh, he has like a seizure, and then kind of wakes up from it. Uh, and like the, the uh, Strom breaks the glass to you know, get to where Norman is. He's inside this glass tube, and Norman just like pounces out of it. Uh, and that's all we see. We kind of cut, um, but it's uh, it's great. Like it's it's this is like this is a good horror movie uh, villain uh, introduction. I think the version of it that we get in Spider Man Two is even more horror based for Doctor Octopus. Oh yeah, and is even better. These are the 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 villain creations. I think are where like classic Raimi is most on display. Uh, this scene, the, uh, the Doc Ock in the operating room, uh, or even Doc Ock in the, uh, the, during the failed experiment has a lot mm-hmm. of those kind of early classic Ramiisms, Um, and even in Spider-Man three, um, for, uh, all its faults, um, uh, you know, and I, which I still, I, I still find it, uh, there are a number of enjoyable elements in that film, uh, which I'll lay out, uh, as we lay out also the number of things we don't enjoy when we actually get around to it but yeah here it's you know it it definitely it feels you're you're just you're sitting in the theater and if you've seen any of Raimi's other films you just think yep there's our guy there's our evil dead army of darkness dark man guy like here's the lab experiment the, the the seizure the like you know the quick whip pans the 
him pulling up and then just the like you know leaping up just Willem Dafoe just in this just a physical stance on the edge of the as he's you know leaping out of it just in that deep crouch I'm just like dude did not skip Pilates that day it's just like he's just uh, such good physicality he's posed like a gargoyle you know he like perches yeah. you know with his arms back out like that uh, and I love that. I forgot. I, I did get it wrong. He throws Strom through the glass and then goes to pounce on him. And yeah. uh, it's you know they, we don't let him. They don't let us see the whole thing, but it's it's fantastic. Like again, he's got that like you know sinewy like Iggy Pop body, but like we understand that like oh no, he's taking this stuff and he is crazy strong now and strong crazy. It- I guess. It does have a certain, and, like, I know it's certainly a trope to, you know, mirror the rise of the hero and the villain, like you said. Um, Here, it's always, like, it it feels always a little weird to me when you have the hero and the villain are connected in an interpersonal way. And yet their origins are completely isolated from one another. The fact that the two people in this universe, or at least the first two people in this universe, to gain superhuman abilities happen to do so uh, on the same day. Um, For totally different the, reasons. The very same day that they meet each other. Um, but have, but that meeting has nothing to do with either of them getting power. Them gaining powers has nothing to do with one another. Um, it always, I mean, I, I definitely understand it as, uh, as a plot contrivance, um, and as a, you know, sort of narrative shorthand, like, all right, well, we got to get, you know, the hero and the villain going and it's, you know, more emotionally satisfying if the hero and the villain are already have some emotional connection to one another rather than just like, oh, you're the bad guy. Well, I'm the good guy. Let's fight. Um, but you know, they don't even know that they have that connection throughout most of it. Um, I always appreciate it a little bit more when, if you're going to do that, like having their, having them be so closely tied to one another, it resonates more with me. If there's some element of their origin that's shared in some way. Um, well, yeah, think of like, you know, Batman uh, dropping Jack Nicholson into the vat of chemicals, right? Like he causes right. the Joker to be born. You know, like there's something there. Um, yeah, you're but, tied you into know, it. You, I think the, the the Ultimate Comics do it, it did a really cool thing where um, the spider bite takes place um, at an Oscorp facility. That the spider itself was uh, an experiment, uh, one of several experiments that uh, that they were running on uh, any number of the things, and that Norman becoming the goblin and uh, injecting himself with the serum and undergoing all of that was in an effort to replicate the powers. But that's of course in a much longer form story. I don't know that you could necessarily do it in the more truncated time frame of a two hour movie. Um, but it's just like, I always appreciate that a little bit more. And here it's definitely one of the things that feels a little lacking for me. Now that I've seen 
how it can be done better on film. Like, you know, when there's nothing else or, you know, very few examples of superhero films out there, you're just kind of like, you know, okay, cool. We got Spider-Man and Green Goblin going and now we can, you know, get into the real actual meat of the story. Um, Once you've seen other examples of how well it can be done and how well those elements can kind of be woven together a little more elegantly. Um, it's, it's hard not to go back and sort of view this through the lens of, Oh, they, you know, maybe could have done a little bit more with that element here. Maybe had them, you know, like just a little tweak here and there, have it be instead of it being this all purpose, museum science lab exhibition center field trip location of super secret superhero origins it's an oscorp facility and that's why norman's there not because he's dropping harry off but because norman helped organize uh this event and you know there's certainly precedent uh both in uh the comics and in uh other animated shows and uh mark webb even did it uh for the amazing spider-man films where you just tie Osborne a little more directly into you know the spider being experimented on are being experimented on at Oscorp facilities you have something of a scientist himself why not have the experiment take place at his something of a science lab himself exactly it's, yeah it's, it's yeah. just the shortest distance between two points is a straight line you know that that's what it is. exactly yeah here it feels like, okay, so we have these two points meet, and then they're going to diverge off in these two completely different directions that are then going to come immediately back to each other, which yeah. I guess forms a diamond, and if you do eight legs off of that, then it's a spider. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the, the, the thinking there is, but it's just, it feels a little yeah. like, you know, okay, I get that, you know, the, the mechanics of the plot require this, but, you know, man, there's, a, there's, there's definitely a more elegant way to do this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so we get Pete waking up. Uh, his he notices his glasses don't work because his eyeballs are good now, uh, and his body is uh, now cut, and uh, you know he's physically fit, and uh, he's very lucky that things don't go worse from there because I saw what happened to Jeff Goldblum when they rewrote his DNA with an with an insect, <laughs> uh, and it started off like this. He's all strong and ripped, and then by the end of that movie, yikes. Um, but here, you know, Peter looks and he sees that's the change. Uh, he goes, wee down the stairs. Uh, and Uncle Ben reminds him he needs to get home early to help him paint. Uh, he leaves the house. He catches MJ's dad yelling at her as she's on her way out. And uh, that you get the sense that, like, that's what it's like at their house all the time. That her dad is just a real piece of shit. Yeah. And he watches her walk to the bus stop and he's like trying to psych himself up to talk to her uh but he doesn't before the bus takes off and he just like in the first scene he tries to catch the bus and this time the like paper banner like homecoming type banner that's on the side of the bus comes off in his hand and just sticks to him uh, we can stop there for a minute because we'll change to something else after that but uh you know, great way of like introducing you to the concept that something's different. Yeah. You're just getting like little hints and, and over the next few scenes, we just get a little of like, Oh, and now this is a little different. Oh, and now this is a little different. The one that like 
once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Um, that, and I don't know how you film it to make it different. But because uh, a, f- a friend pointed it out to me a few years uh, after the movie first came out. But the fact that, like, he sees fine without the glasses now. But his vision is, you know, naturally blurred with uh, his former prescription of lenses. Um, when they do the his POV shot, where he's, like, putting the glasses on and off. If you notice it, like, you know, because naturally when he's got the glasses on, it's blurred. But it's also blurred... Outside of the glasses, like when he's, you know, then taking them off hmm. to then like, because it should only be blurry through the lenses. But like, how do you, I, I don't know how you do that, you know, shot. The, I mean, they're clearly doing it very, you know, kind of in camera, like, okay, focus, out of focus, back in focus, out of focus, hmm. which you can't really isolate. But, you know, it's it's very funny to me that then you're like. Wait, why are his why is this vision blurring outside of the glasses now that his eyes are better? Um, and this is one of those like small little technical things, but it makes me giggle. It's a cute little flub. I, I never noticed that, but now I will see it obviously every time I watch it. I've shattered that glass for you now, my friend. You can oh, never put man. the shards back together again. Because otherwise, the, the special effects in the f- film are uh, impeccable. There's nothing to criticize. Uh, anyway, uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, quick point they are on... Actually, uh, balance, they are very good, but uh, there are... Yeah, moving on. Uh, uh, yeah, with uh, MJ's dad and kind of her family relationship, uh, just to point out uh, another little divergence from the source material, that uh, MJ in the comics... One, she, again, uh, much like Harry, does not come into Peter's life until his uh, college years. Um, You know, we're certainly getting a lot of the kind of Lee Ditko uh, origin story here in the first act. But the majority of the film, and even elements here in the first act, and some of the characters we're introduced to, really are a little more beholden to uh, some later eras of Spider-Man, and kind of his college and, like, young adult years his uh you know working at the bugle his friendship with harry and mj um him and harry live in the college bachelor life um and those are really more later stories uh when like uh john ramita was drawing the book or gene colon um but mary jane when we first meet her is the niece of uh aunt may's friend who lives next door like she's definitely not the literal girl next door in the original comics she does have a very strained uh relationship with her father who uh you know left her and her mother at a very early age here we get a little bit more of a shorthand he's present but he's shitty um and we understand why she kind of wants to be off on her own and I think also it gives us that little glimpse behind the curtain that we get with uh, what we were talking about before with Harry and Norman's first scene that MJ, the popular girl, the uh, you know the girl next door, the, the the dream, the ideal, this girl he has put on the highest of pedestals, and things are not perfect for her either. You know things are very, you know we never see inside the the Watson home, but every glimpse we get of it from the outside certainly uh, shows us that you know things aren't right. 
And there is a drive in her to escape uh, that we see time and again. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, that drive to escape, because when I watched it this time, I was struck by something I hadn't thought of before, which is that there's that element, which also applies to Peter, I think, to larger, you know, the, we just got to get out of this place. Um, there's a lot of DNA from something like Rocky or like, yeah. you know, Born to Run, like Bruce Springsteen songs, like these people that are sort of living in this sort of this certain social strata, you know, in an urban environment that's you know not so hot you know they're they're in like a, not the greatest part of town and like you know like that's drive like man if i could just you know you got a fast car we, we can get out of this place you know uh, we can that that feeling is and particularly rocky with sort of its emphasis on like you know you, you get knocked down and you keep going you know and you go that distance you know even if you don't win you you fight as hard as you can till the end um, th- that's all here, you know. That that is, I think, a part of this. And and this scene in particular yeah. shows that he, you know, those two characters share that. Um, yeah. All right. Oh, so we go sure, to. Yeah. Um, Although I think a yeah. New York City kid like Peter would uh, take great issue with you comparing him to anybody from Philly or New Jersey. New Jer- so fair uh, point. Just be careful. Just watch yourself out there, man. I'm just. I'm just saying. I, you know, uh, I get it, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I still think the the concept works, even if the the localities change. No, 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 no. You are completely on point. You are absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, and Spidey's <laughs> always had that working class hero uh, in his DNA. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it should absolutely uh, be called out. And I like that. You know, you get a sense of. You know, every time we see uh, Aunt May and Uncle Ben together, you know, it's like they're talking about work. They're trying to pay bills. They're, you know, there's, you know, past due notices on the table. There's, you know, mortgage payments that, you know, are not uh, in arrears. Um, It's, it really does feel like, you know, this isn't someone who lives in a mansion. This isn't someone who has a tower with their name on it or, you know, a, a fortress of solitude or any, you know, play. he's got this little rundown place in Queens and, you know, MJ in this version uh, is very much the same. She's in the comics. She's much more kind of like a party girl. She's much more kind of cosmopolitan uh, puts on these airs of being kind of superficial. Um, here we, it really does feel to me, and I know we get her later in the franchise, but she's very much a, an amalgamation in a lot of ways of the Mary Jane from the comics and Gwen Stacy, I feel like, in this movie, uh, personality-wise, at the very least. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Where she is a little more of that kind of uh, you know grounded uh, girl-next-door uh, type that Gwen is, but still has that sort of you know popular, fun... Uh, party girl uh, aspects to her as well, which we see through the veneer uh, pretty quickly. Um, but l- much like MJ, uh, who started out as a aspiring model in the comics, uh, both of them eventually have aspirations of being uh, an actor. And the various successes and failures, of course, uh, drive them in uh, both iterations. Um but yeah, I think 
you're you're spot on that there is that sort of like you know we we always are from where we're from but even when we get out um but then we always come back as well like every movie peter you know comes back to where he's from a little bit um yeah and sometimes where he's from is mj uh she's a part of his own part of the i think the, the their arc through the trilogy is the two of them coming to see each other not only as they have imagined each other to be over these years especially these beginning years but to see and understand each other as they truly are kind of really taking the pedestal down and being able to understand each other uh, as people, not as, you know, ideals or as these, you know, kind of larger than life figures. Um, and here we get the perfect example of that, you know, kind of the first sort of crack in the, not saying that Peter hasn't perhaps noticed turmoil in the Watson household before now. Uh, but, you know, everything we've seen of how he views her up to this point is she's the girl next door. I've, you know, loved her forever, you know, watch her creepily through the window, but it's okay. Cause I love her and that makes it all right. Um, it's like, you're still a voyeur, Pete. Come on, close the blinds. <laughs> Girl's just trying yeah. to get ready. <laughs> it's creepy. Uh, no doubt. Um, so we'll get this quick scene here for a minute uh, where Harry comes home. He finds Norman on the floor. He doesn't, Norman doesn't remember what happened the night before, but we hear that Dr. Strom was murdered by somebody and the suit and glider were stolen. Uh, not much to say about that, but it you know, lets us know what's going on before we cut back to Peter uh, in the cafeteria where he performs this amazing catch as MJ's tray is uh, tossed up in the air. He manages to catch it and everything on it in one swoop. And, uh, I, and for a long time, I thought, well, that's an amazing special effect. I don't know how they did that. And the answer is, it's not a special effect. They just did 160 takes until Tobey Maguire caught everything. Yeah. And, uh, it looks yeah, great. that's a fucking that's practical effect. So, so fucking impressive. Yeah. Oh, my God. I fucking, yeah. yeah, that blows my mind every single time. Like, you know, I've, I've known it for a few years now, and every time someone brings it up, I'm just like, oh, I know, isn't that so fucking cool? Because it's not even just, like, catching everything on the tray. It's, like, this very particular stacked configuration that, like, how though? <laughs> the answer is the the law of averages. You do it enough times, and eventually it's going to work. But yeah, the, you can tell from that the look floor had to be so like, sticky shit. by yeah. the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is pretty cool. Uh, we get to this scene uh, where. So what happens after that is he he's struggling because he's accidentally webbed a fork to himself. And as he tries to get it off, he ends up whipping a, uh, a, a tray that belongs to Flash Thompson. And uh, he run, Pete runs off. The tray follows him uh, after it, like, basically dumps everything onto Flash. And we get this great scene in the hallway where he's walking in the hallway and everything goes super slow-mo. Uh, where we see, like, you know, a fly's wings beating as we kind of zoom around. Sort of a fight club type shot, actually. Um, as we zoom around everything and, and Peter realizes that a fist is coming at his head. Uh, he, he dodges it. He does a bunch of matrix moves. He, he, you know, flips backwards. 
Uh, and eventually he just punches Flash, the bully, straight into the lockers as hard as he can. Uh, and then uh, when everyone freaks out, he runs off. And, uh, you know, one, yes, a uh, useful scene to establish the spider sense uh, from a plot point. Uh, also good to let him get his revenge on the bully. Um, but th- what I really like about the scene is the reaction to it happening. It, it's not like, you know, if if Tom Holland's Spider-Man did this, you know, in a modern setting, I think the reaction from the class would be like, oh, yeah, that was amazing. That was so cool. It would be like a positive reaction. And here the reaction yeah. is, is more along the lines of like, oh, my God, you're a freak. You know, it's still negative, even though he's, in theory, should be the coolest kid on campus for having pulled this off. Yeah, um, and I think it's uh, part yeah. of it has to do with, you know, the, it, it's it serves a thematic purpose because, like we've said before, like Spider-Man, a lot of Spider-Man's strength and a lot of our ability to empathize with him comes from the fact that he's the underdog. That low status kind of nature. The fact that he's, you know, a misfit. The fact that he's viewed as a freak. Even among... You know, other heroes, you know, I was talking before about how, you know, in our esteem, he kind of stands uh, among the titans of the genre. Um, but when you really, you know, kind of stop and think about it, like he's a creepy, crawly little bug man, uh, you know, he twists his body into, you know, weird shapes and, you know, dodges and leaps around while he's, you know, quipping away. He's not the like the the stalwart and true kind of standard hero. Uh, even physically, that we normally see. And that's part of his appeal is that he's not, that he breaks from the norm, no pun intended. Um, That he is this misfit, this outcast, even when he should win. He wins the fight, but everyone thinks he's a freak now. Um, You know, again, it's that Parker luck. Uh, I do want to point out real quick, uh, because it, because I'm a I'm a big fan of his. Uh Flash Thompson here played by uh Mr. Sofia Vergara himself, Joe Manganiello, uh who has popped up in so many uh films and TV shows over the years, but uh would have uh served double duty uh and did somewhat um in Marvel and DC uh having shown up briefly uh, unfortunately, because I thought he would have been really good as a character, uh, as uh, Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke, at the end of uh, Justice League, setting up for what would have been an appearance and what would have been Ben Affleck's uh, Batman movie had it ever come into being. Um, and, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed Like, I didn't realize it was... Because I didn't know... Of course, I didn't know who he was when... Uh, this movie came out and it was just like, you know, oh, that's the guy who played Flash. And then a number of years later, you know, I see him on like How I Met Your Mother and, you know, a number of other shows and movies and just think like, you know, he's great and he's, you know, kind of parlayed a lot of that. Uh, It's, you know, interesting that at least in my mind, I'm sure he had had plenty of roles before this, but, you know, this now is the first in my sort of Manganiello timeline and he's really kind of parlayed uh, his own personal nerdy geekiness, particularly for uh, role-playing games, uh, into a whole other, you know, kind of self-branding 
um, you know, has has his own line of uh, Dungeons and Dragons themed clothing. Has a character he designed is now like in the canon of D and D lore. And I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, yeah, this kid who started out uh, in a Spider Man movie is now, uh, you know, a film and TV star married to uh, one of the most beautiful women alive and selling D&D clothes. Like, you know, that's, that's, I don't know how many wishes he has left, um, but they don't appear to have been cast on any kind of monkey's paw because everything really does uh, seem to be going Pretty okay for this guy, or I guess you know maybe not getting the Batman movie was uh, was the price to be paid here. But uh, Flash is an interesting character too uh, in the comics. He actually, and they never bring him back uh, in these films. And of course, we've seen a wholly different take on him in the uh, the MCU um, with a uh, uh, Tony Revolori's take on him. But in the comics, he actually he is uh, you know kind of uh, as he is in the MCU. He become like while he's picking on Peter, he's a huge Spider-Man fan, like just number one Spider-Man fanboy, um, and eventually discovers that they are you know after you know years uh, and into college and everything, Peter and Flash actually kind of become uh, friends to a certain extent, and eventually really good friends, especially once uh, Flash comes to uh, realize. Uh, Peter's secret identity and knows them as one and the same. Uh, Peter's kind of heroism drives Flash to enlist in the military, where in the comics he has his uh, he's uh, wounded in action and loses his legs, um, and you know comes back home and is dealing with um, all the things that uh, our veterans. Sadly, have to deal with uh, in this country, um, but in a weird kind of twist of fate. And I'm only mentioning this because it's the source of one of my favorite uh, runs in the comics uh, in the past, like uh, you know, ten, fifteen years. He actually winds up getting bonded with the Venom symbiote that has been sort of detached from Eddie Brock, and so he becomes a character known as Agent Venom. Who now you know works for the government because when he's wearing the symbiote suit, it makes him it gives him legs and gives him you know other abilities, and he actually like masters the use of the suit and bonds with it in a way that Eddie never did, and then winds up dying again and comes back again and becomes anti Venom, who Eddie had been for a while because comics, y'all. Um, but he <laughs> like you know he's really a remarkable character. And the fact that he, so far in the movies, has really only gotten to be Peter's bully um, is a little bit of a shame to me. Uh, you know, not that you know they are beholden to tell the Flash Thompson saga by any means, but I'm like, there's so much more to him than being the bully. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet... And yet, maybe Tony will get to wear the symbiote eventually. But... I don't know if I want that version of Tony with a symbiote too. But anyway, um, <laughs> I would be very he, curious he, to see he, that he, take he, like, on Agent Mega Venom. douchey. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, Pete gets home late. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. 
so after he runs, he runs into an alleyway. He sees a spider and he puts two and two together. We get this cool shot of like these like insect, tiny insect hairs in his fingertips, which shows you how he like sticks to things. Uh, I guess they're good enough to go through the costume later. But anyway, um, that's he, an element he, taken step- from uh, Spider-Man 2099. I just want to call that out real quick because it's not, it's never really explained in the com- like how Peter sticks to objects. It's just sort of like, yeah, he's got like a, a sort of adhesive abilities like a spider. It's really, it, but it gets explained with uh, Miguel O'Hara, the Spider-Man of 2099, that he has those mm. kind of prongs that you know, sort of can stick out of any part of him and like cling to. Uh, various surfaces. So I like that they, you know, here they're kind of, you know, they're bringing in, you know, different elements. It's the, you know, organic web shooters from, you know, one version of the story. They're bringing in uh, the uh, stabby things on his fingers from 2099. Just using, you know, any part of the, you know, kind of Spider-Man lore that, you know, works and sort of helps explain things. Because, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, he sticks to it like a spider, whatever. You give audiences the slightest explanation to hang their hats on and they're just like you know, oh yeah okay yeah that makes sense so, yeah he's got a little prongy yep. things yeah as opposed to just being like you know oh yeah he crawls on things like you just give him that like that little sliver of just him looking and it's such a it's a cool shot too it's a really fucking cool shot of just like the things coming out of his fingers and you're just like oh that's interesting <laughs> like yeah does it always make sense? Does it always track? Should it always go through everything that he's wearing? Not necessarily, shoes, but we yeah. get that one shot of the things coming out of his fingers, and that's all we need for the next three films to understand. Yeah, he sticks to stuff. Good enough. Uh, and we get like an aborted <laughs> version. We get this aborted version of like the first flight scene, which I like, is that he's jumping yeah. over rooftops, and he's like, seems like he's kind of getting it. He tries. He's still learning how to make the webs come out. Uh, we get this cute little scene of him like trying like catchphrases as he starts to shoot out the web. One of which is up, up and away, which is again another nod to Superman, which is cute. Uh, he finally. And we also get Shazam. That we get we get two DC references for the oh, price yeah, of one. We get a Shazam, yeah. Uh, I and I just have to me. call out here real quick because of the various like hand signs he makes. Got yeah, I'm an Austin, Texas boy from way back. Horns. He yeah. hooks he hooks them horns. And he gives it the little, like, you know, shake there. That's, you know, that's our thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I went to UT. I was going to UT when I saw this movie. And the theater went wild here in Austin. I'll bet. Like, yeah. when that moment I happened. Thought, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, all right. Spidey's a lot more. I thought it was more of, like, a metal. I thought it was more of the metal thing. But it's, it works for that, too. Um, but he got, he Let, he let me have swing. this, Doug. Let me have this uh, one you, thing. You can have it. You can have it. <laughs> He, he tries to swing, He gravity takes him, and he just goes, he does what things that uh, pendulums do. He swings down and he just smashes <laughs> into something. Uh, so he gets home late. He, we see that he missed out on painting with Ben. There's a note for him. Uh, and there's another fight at the Watsons. So Peter goes out to talk to MJ in the backyard, and they kind of have this kind of moment of recognition, you know, that he's sort of been, he's had his eye on her the whole time, and uh, they talk about their future. Her, he wants to be a photographer. She wants to be an actress. Again, you know, shades of uh, Springsteen. You know, we gotta, you know, hop on my this ride. It's gonna take us anywhere. Thunder Road. All this stuff. Um, but then the spell is kind of broken because she sees Flash's cool new car, and she just goes running off. You know, all of a sudden the tears and stuff. The humanity is covered back up by the popular girl, and she's off to go with him. 
uh, and which gives Peter the idea that maybe what he really needs to get her to like him is a cool car. Because <laughs> that's the lesson he needed to take from that conversation. <laughs> it's the lesson a kid that's, you know, 17 would take. Yeah. You know, that, that's how I see it. Um, and, you know, in theory, you shouldn't be trying to chase a girl who thinks that she should just be with a guy because his car is cool. But we know that somewhere in there yeah. is the real MJ who has more heart than that. It's so that, okay. you know, it's that classic, you know, cycle of abuse. She trades one, you know, toxic, abusive asshole for another, just, you know, daddy for boyfriend. And eventually kind of, you know, like sort of see maybe why she's a little drawn to Harry later on and takes her a little while to, you know, understand like, you know, no, I do deserve a good guy, a heroic guy, a guy who will stand up for me, a guy who will, you know, be there. Treat me with um, basic respect and dignity. Yeah, make out with me upside down in the rain. It's uh, it's mm-hmm. that that's what every woman deserves, right? Like, yeah, it's not a it's it's not super progressive feminism, but you know, it's it's a step in the right direction. It's like you know, you deserve to be saved by a man, not abused by a string of abusive assholes. Uh, it's a step in the right direction, but it's still like a little like. Yeah, maybe MJ ha- could have a little more agency um, as she eventually will when she's uh, Michelle instead of Mary Jane. But you know, for the moment at least, right. it's uh, it's it's a learning process. It's a, it's it's growth across the multiverse. Right. Uh, so we get to uh, the you know Peter's looking at ads for cars. He finds one that's three thousand bucks, and then he finds an ad that'll pay three thousand bucks for wrestling. Uh, amateur wrestling, so he he starts uh, drawing costume ideas in this montage. We see him swipping a can of Dr. Pepper, and then we see that he swipped everything in his room. And we hear uh, Aunt May to you know ask what's going on in there in uh, a <laughs> a scene that has no parallels to teenage masturbation. I uh, cannot and, uh, think of a single one. No, yeah. I have never uttered that phrase uh, in my life as an adolescent or uh, since then. Um, <clears throat> yep. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so uh, we have a quick scene of Norman Osborn. Um, you know, we hear you know, uh, cackling and stuff with him. Like he's, you know, it's clearly he's becoming the goblin, but not much happens. So I'm going to cut ahead to Pete, uh, Ben drops Pete off at the library. He says he's going to the library anyway. And this is where we, he gets the, you know, the, uh, the red shirt pep talk here. Uh, and he's, he's, you know, Ben tells him, you know, they kind of, they have a really interesting fight where Ben is trying to tell Peter, you know, he needs to, you know, think about the man he's going to become. He's going through a lot of changes, which Pete, you know, internalizes as being about, you know, becoming a Spider-Man. Um, and what Ben is talking about, of course, is adulthood and, you know, being a responsible person. Um, I really like this scene between them. Um, you know, it's played very well. You know, Toby has, yeah. you know, bigger th- fish to fry on, in his mind anyway. Uh, and it's it's this great thing because we can see how it's going to haunt him. The, you know, their last conversation together was, you know, that ended on kind of bad terms. You know, it was this kind of snippy, you know, uh, awkward conversation. Um, and yeah. we get the, and of we, course, we the famous lines. Yeah, it's something that we see both with Toby and Andrew, the fact that the last interaction they both have with uh, 
their unique iterations have been are essentially the, you know, you're not my real dad kind of speech. Um, right. The fact, you know, that here like that, you know, it, yeah. that Cliff kind of uh, Cliff Robertson's version, you know, kind of understands that. And it's just like, it's like, I know, I know I'm not your dad. And it's like, you know, then quit trying to be. And we see the way, you know, that reverberates all the way to the end of the movie and sort of Peter's, you know, emotional victory uh, towards the end. But here it's definitely going to be that thing that haunts him. And Ben you know, gives him the that quintessential line, the more truncated version of it, the uh, with great power comes great responsibility, um, which has become so like, kind of iconically tied to Ben Parker and even retroactively in the comics. In the comics, originally, it's not a spoken line of dialogue. It's the like final narrated line that Stan Lee wrote at the end of the story. That like as Spider-Man's, you know, walking away and understanding that like that his selfishness had the side effect of, you know, costing him his uncle's life, that as he's, you know, sort of walking away you know, mournfully for the first, but far from the last time, you know, as Spider-Man that that's sort of that like, and now here's the moral of the story that he has now learned that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. But in order to sort of embed that into, you know, Spider-Man's understood wisdom, because Spider-Man can't hear the, the narration boxes around him. So, in order to make that a little more of a, you know, philosophical part of his mentality, they retroactively said, like, you know, this was something that Ben said to him over and over again, just a very, you know, like, a, like a homily that he repeated, you know, multiple times, um, to the point that it's sort of become the accepted wisdom that, oh, yeah, Ben Parker always, you know, that was always the sort of you know, the thing he always said, um, which is why I like that, you know, you know, we don't really get. He doesn't say it verbatim, in uh, in the in the web films with uh, uh, Martin Sheen playing the role. Uh, you know, it's and it's not even him repeating his own philosophy. He says he tells him, you know, it's like your father had a belief, and then it's sort of a reworded version of that. And then, and you know, now in Holland's version, where we never really get to meet Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben's already you know gone and dead by the time we meet uh, Spidey. And Civil War. Um, and so the first time we really hear that line uttered verbatim is uh, Aunt May saying it to him uh, in No Way Home. And very different circumstances in a very different context, but it, you know, lands all the same. Um, but this is the first time we really, I think, like the mass uh, audience. Kind of gives, not everybody's read the comics. Not everybody watched the cartoon. This is the first time a lot of people heard this wisdom was Cliff Robertson's take on Ben Parker sitting in that car. And I mean, that exchange between the two of them, you know, for that and a lot of other reasons, like you said, this is a very well performed scene. Both of them are just, you know, like really on their game and really riffing on each other. And you feel that anger welling up inside of Peter and this every time we've seen it lashed out before you know whether it be you know at Flash or just kind of you know in general 
it's felt justified. It's felt like, you know, it's like, yeah, this guy, this is the guy we can cheer for. Like you were saying before, uh, for kicking Flash's ass, you know, like, yeah, maybe he deserved it, but, and everybody thinks he's a freak now. Okay. But we know he's the good guy here. He lashes out at the person we know is a genuinely good person. The person who's always had his back, the person who's helped raise him for however many years, uh, it's supposed to be, you know, we never really get an exact number on when Peter's parents died in this version of events, but, uh, you know, clearly Ben and may have been his parental figures for a good long while. And he's, you know, they've got every other scene we see between them, even when things are, you know, like a little strained or like, you know, Oh, you're running up the door. Well, don't forget to be back here. And don't you start up with me. And, uh, there's clearly a love between them. And then here you see the, you know, flip side of that, that sometimes we can be mad at the people we love. And sometimes we can lash out at the people we love. Usually we get a chance to make it right. Usually we get a chance to apologize or forgive each other. And the great tragedy of Ben and Peter here is they will never get that opportunity. Like we get some, you know, sequences in the next movie that, uh, you know, have some interactions, uh, between a, a dream ghost, Ben, what have you, uh, and Peter, but you know, real life in the, you know, real here and now their last interaction is one of anger. Like they'll have, at least one last little experience with each other. And there's a lot that goes on unspoken. Well, I'm sure we'll, you know, get to that scene here in a little bit, but man, it just, yeah, it, it tears you up. Cause especially when you know what's coming and, you know, comic fans going into this movie knew what the hell was coming. Um, and so it's just like watching him leave that car and knowing what was to come. I don't know that, like, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be, that soon after, because like I said, you know, in the comics, it there's a little bit more of a time frame where he has a little bit more presence as a, you know, minor celebrity before uh, the incident occurs uh, after the wrestling match. But you definitely know that seed is being planted there, both right. the like tragic loss and the wisdom that's going to carry him through all of his other hard times. Like Ben gives him. There's, you know, a thing I always, you know, like to say is every superhero origin has two parts, the super and the hero. And the super we already got. We got the spider bite. We see his powers. We see him, you know, using him, figuring things out. The hero is what makes you decide to use those gifts for good. And while there's a lot more, you know, kind of practical stuff to come before Peter figures that out, the seed of it is right here. Ben Parker wisdom gift wrapped for you, for you to open up posthumously to really understand what he was talking about and to have to keep understanding what uh, he was talking about. Like this is the essential lesson in each film that he has to sort of unfold a new aspect of to really come to understand like, because on the surface, it sounds very simplistic. You know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. The truth of it is, like, that has so many levels and so many meanings and so many dimensions. What 
does power mean? What does responsibility mean? What is the nature of greatness? You know, just like you can get into just the semantics of it, but when it comes to the lived experience, but here the first time, boom, in this moment, and just it resonates through everything else, this movie and beyond. Yeah, it really is brutal, um, you know, knowing what's to come. Uh, but now, speaking of brutal, uh, Bonesaw is ready. <laughs> Bonesaw is uh, ready. And Randy <laughs> Savage, legend of the game. A, yeah, what a what a great little bit of casting to have a real uh, uh, wrestler in here. Um, but we get the scene where you know Peter wants to wrestle under the moniker the Human Spider, and a wise person tells him to change it to Spider Man, and does so. Against his will. A very wise that and person, recognizable person for Sam Raimi fans. Yeah, that's right. That is Bruce Campbell, the star of the Evil Dead trilogy, uh, you know, Raimi uh, fan favorite. Uh, so much so that actually they used him. Uh, so they did tie-in video games for Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2. And when you play those games, there's a tutorial level where, you know, it's like, you know, press this button to... You know, thwip a web, press this button to jump and swing or do whatever. And as you go through it, there's these little – you find these little, like, gold tokens that, like, basically you, you're supposed to maneuver your character, your little Spider-Man avatar to that location where then you get the next bit of explanation as to how to do something. All the tutorial right. dialogue is Bruce Campbell on both of those games. <laughs> and I think maybe the one they did for three as well. I'm not sure. But just kind of fun to let – like, Bruce Campbell is, like, part of this franchise even though he plays – Three completely different characters in each uh, movie, but just fun well, to see. Well, the interesting here. thing is that for the uh, for the fourth or possibly fifth movie, like depending on when they wanted to, but uh, Rainey has said they were going to reveal that every one of those three characters was actually the same character. That it was, and that that character was Mysterio, was Quentin Beck. And have him be uh, the villain of either four or five. But establish that it's like, you know, oh, no, he's been there the whole time kind of studying, you know, like maneuvering to be around or, you know, like whatever the case. Because Mysterio is the master of illusion. So, of course, for him to, you know, be completely unrecognizable, even though, you know, that jawline is very distinct. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, also a fun Bruce Campbell movie you ever seen is Bubba Hotep. That's a, a weird one, but a fun one. Uh, all right. So anyway, he, yeah. So he wrestles, uh, we do get a lot of quips here during the wrestling match. I think that's a good chance for some spider quips. Uh, he mostly stays out of bone saws way. Um, until he gets like beaten with a chair pretty good, but eventually he kind of flips onto his back and kicks him a bunch and kicks him so hard that he just wins the match. Unfortunately, because he did not go the full three minutes he was required to go with Bonesaw, the piece of shit who runs the wrestling says, I'm only going to give you $100 instead of the full 3000 And uh, because of that, when the guy is robbed a few minutes later and the robber comes dashing by, the guy says, hey, stop him. Peter just steps out of the way and lets him go. Uh, and, you know, the guy says, thanks. He hops in the elevator and the guy says, you could have taken that guy apart. And he says, I missed the part where that's my problem. Uh, what a great line for that. I missed the, that's the part where that's my problem. Because of course, that's completely in opposite to what uncle Ben just told him 
right? You yeah. you've got to take responsibility. There is no such thing as that's someone else's problem, right? It's not my problem. No, you have a res- greater responsibility to the community community than to just let these things happen that you could prevent. Well, and the the interesting thing here again, you know, sort of pointing out uh, some of the divergence from the source material, is in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. Uh, this moment in the movie, it's played as him getting back at the promoter. He's like, you know, like, yeah, you know, you, you know, you said this, what, you know, my money problems weren't your problem. Well, now your money problems aren't my problem. I'm just going to let this guy go. This isn't, you know, my deal, man. And the comics, there's not even really that. It's just, he can't be bothered to get involved. He's sort of, you know, there at the event, you know, guy runs past and he's sort of like, you know, the cop comes running, you know, past him and, you know, stops and looks at him. He's like, he's like, Hey man, why didn't you stop and help me? And the Spidey's like, he's like, Hey, that's your job. Not mine. Like, you know, I'm just doing me. And you know, it's much more of a callous and negligent, uh, kind of thing where, and then only when he gets home later on, uh, and gets the news that that same guy broke into, uh, ben and May's house that Ben fought back and got shot there. Um, here it's a little more, you feel, I feel like as an audience, a little more justified. Like if you don't know what's about to happen, this is one of those moments where it's just like, yeah, yeah, take that asshole down a peg. Yeah, yeah, he needed to pay you your mm-hmm. money. So now he knows what it feels like. And, you know, you feel like there's that sort of instant karma Kind of like is like you know yeah I I would have I would have done that to get back at him I w- like that feels justified to me and then when you get the consequences immediately after you know not even Spidey going home Spidey Peter just going to frigging get he walks outside his ride. yeah yeah he walks outside and it's you know you know right there the consequences are immediate. Um, I think the impact to the audience is even greater. I think that was a really smart call um, and a really good divergence uh, from the source material to make you feel a little bit more. It makes his uh, actions a little feel more justified. Like I'm sure there are plenty of us who in that circumstance would have just been like, he's like, Hey, yeah, not my problem. Like, you know, not, no vendetta, no ill will towards anybody. Just like, oh, that's that's a problem for the cops. Like, this is not my you know fight to get involved in. Or you know, it's like, hey man, I'm just taking care of the money maker here. Like, there's plenty of us who would engage in that, but it doesn't appeal to our greater natures. Whereas I feel like we have such a sense of wanting there to be some kind of cosmic justice some sort of moral comeuppance when bad things happen to us we want bad things to happen to those people it's that road rage mentality you know like the guy cuts you off in traffic and then you know you see him get into a fender bender you know a few blocks later he feels like yeah it serves you right i mean it doesn't serve him right and you know the other person had damage done too you don't know what kind of injuries were done like you know that's Kind of a terrible way to feel, but we feel good about it. We feel justified, and we feel for Peter. Like, yeah. Yeah. Fucking let the guy go by. You don't owe that other guy anything. 
I would have done the same thing. You're in the right. We're righteous. Everything's great. Hey, who's that lying on the ground over there? Right. And then it drops. Yep. It's Uncle Ben. And it doesn't, that scene actually doesn't last very long. Peter, you know, sees that his uncle is dying. He dies. You know, he's just sort of saying, Peter. Uh, and then almost immediately we hear the police radio that, you know, they're chasing the guy. And Peter snaps into action. You know, he does yeah. the, the quick change in the alley. Uh, we see that he's about to do a swing like he did before. And this time he finally gets it right in terms of getting understanding the momentum uh, and the physics of swinging. And he takes off after this guy in a pretty, uh, you know, action-packed thing. He's you know, go- going over the freeway. He's dodging bullets. Um, and he crashes into a warehouse. Uh, and he kind of, like, stalks this guy in the darkness until we sort of see, you know, they come face to face. He's got a gun. Peter takes away the gun. You know, they Peter has that moment of recognition as to who this is, the guy who ran past him. And the guy backs up and he, like, trips over, like, a, a pipe that's sticking out and goes through the window and dies. So he doesn't technically kill the guy. But as he later says in uh, No Way Home, he says, uh, you know, I got what I wanted. Yeah. That's how he describes it. Yeah. And, and it know, feels, again, it's like that immediate sort of just desserts mentality of just like he's like yeah that's the guy who killed ben yeah okay good i'm glad he's dead which i feel like i'm glad it got brought up and addressed a little bit more in no way home because here it feels like such a dangling emotional thread it's like we never see peter sort of deal with the emotional aftermath of i mean like he's definitely dealing with ben's death and his feeling of responsibility for that but you know there's never really any sense of like what does it mean to you that you know upon realizing that fact this person you know died maybe not through your direct action but certainly you created the circumstances where you know such a quote-unquote accident would occur and it's not like you went out of your way to you know save the guy um it it, it <laughs> following a scene where we like you know so masterfully navigate that area between justice and vengeance to then just sort of fall into the action hero trope of well, the bad guy died, but I didn't kill him, so I'm still okay. Right, my soul like, is morally clean. Yeah, I'm like, the Peter we've seen so far, and the Peter that you know we know from the, the comics and pretty much every iteration, like, that Peter, I think, would carry the weight of that a little bit. Or even just, like, even if it wasn't, oh, man, I should have saved you know his life because it was the right thing to do. Being like, you know, he will never face justice for his crime. Like, he just kind of felt like... Here it almost feels, because we never address it, because he sort of... All we see is him look out the window at the, the fallen robber. Um, It almost feels like... Peter feels thwarted in this moment. Like, you know, he died accidentally when it should have been me 
to have killed him because it's like played kind of callously. Um, and so I like the fact that, you know, it sort of, we get a little bit of a lampshade on it, uh, in no way home where it's like, you know, yeah, now we see Peter finally talks about what it felt like and what he felt in that moment, both, you know, how in one way good it felt and in one way bad. Um, and we understand, you know, he is a, he's a complex person like we all are. Um, it just, it felt like a really missed opportunity here uh, for like a, a way to differentiate Spider-Man from what we've understood heroes to be through not only superhero movies, but just action movies in general for decades. I think seeing him as someone remorseful, and I guess we get it a little bit like towards the end when like, you know, he doesn't kill Norman, but you know, Norman dies and they're, you know, fighting and you know, he brings him home. He, you know, puts him to rest. He honors his vow not to tell Harry the truth about what Norman did. He, when he had no obligation to do that. Um, so in that way, it kind of, you know, backfires on him a little bit. But, you know, I think there was a way to kind of make that contrast come into uh, starker relief so that we really understood what he was going through. Um, because that's, re- that's one of the things I think that makes him stand apart so much uh, in sort of the superhero pantheon, not only among Marvel heroes, but just all of them, is that, you know, not only I'm going to strive to do right, but when I get it wrong, um, I'm going to carry that weight. Yeah. Also, the effects of him in the like uh, the rough wrestling costume when he's crawling on the walls and just like really bad, like really really bad. Like even for the time, it looked really bad. Yeah, <laughs> that, well, that one's a little goofy. Bothers me. Like you know, yeah. know, you know, not to go from like you know this deep philosophical discussion to it's like and the CGI sucked. Uh, but like, I feel I would feel remiss if I didn't call out the fact. And you know, most of the time he's in the full like fully developed Spidey get up. And we, so when you see him crawling around, it's a, but it's like here with him in the like, you know, kind of more homemade outfit with the, you know, visible human eyes. Like it, it's just, it looks it like it's not fake. Look good. It, it just does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's bad video game graphics. Yeah. Uh, and it won't be the last time we see something like that. But anyway, um, uh, true. Pete, uh, Pete, uh, you know, he sits on a gargoyle. He feels bad. Uh, he goes home and, and, you know, there's a moment between, uh, you know, kind of a wordless moment between him and May as she, you know, realizes what's happened. Uh, and we get to this test of the quest, uh, their military thing they're working on, which is this really weird looking exoskeleton. Um, yeah. <laughs> before the, the goblin, who we only get like a glimpse of, glides in. And blows everything to smithereens, which 
the the explosion like uh, match cuts to um, mortarboards being thrown in the air at graduation. And, I love uh, that shot so much. I love that. Yeah, edit. It, that's such a cool edit. I love it. Yeah, uh, and we get a little bit of the, you know the it's just after graduation, so everyone's kind of talking about where they're going. They're going, you know, the kids are all going to the city. Norman, uh, you know, gives uh, Harry, um, sorry. He tells Harry he's proud of him for graduating, which is like a rare thing we can tell. Um, and he also gives Pete some uh, encouragement. Says, "Hey, if you want a job," and he says, "No, I'm going to make my own way." Um, and which impresses Norman. And uh, we see that MJ and Flash are breaking up. So thing maybe there's an opportunity. Uh, so maybe. we go back home. Maybe. Um, Pete and uh, Aunt May have a moment, you know, where they kind of reminisce about Uncle Ben, and she reminds him, you know, hey, you know, even though that you guys, the last thing you had was was a fight, you know, he loved you, uh, you know, so you won't disappoint him. By the way, with great power comes great responsibility. And with that, uh, you know, Pete revives the Spider-Man program. He develops <laughs> the proper Spider-Man suit because um, I guess he can sew. And uh, we get I'm this sure. montage of him doing, you know, you know, his uh, first uh, six months on the job or so uh, of daring do as he takes down bad guys here and there. He quips on a few things. We see like the man on the streets reaction to it. We get a person busking a weird version of the 60s cartoon Spider-Man theme, uh, which is <laughs> kind of fun. And uh, from there, we cut to J. Jonah Jameson, played by... Um, uh, J.K. Simmons, the only person, as, as far as I can tell, who is worthy of playing this character now. I mean, like, the fact that they brought him back for No Way Home, like, just is like, it has to be him. You can't top this. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, like, bloviating, uh, you know, tycoon who is exactly, like, I remember this, enjoying this character played by Ed Asner in the 90s cartoon. And it was like, oh yeah. man, they 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 just made that cartoon alive. They must have Roger Rabbited this guy into a real human being, because <laughs> it's incredible. Like the, the way he just like tosses off these like Groucho Marx level, you know, one liners and quips and responses to everything everyone says. Um, it, it's you know, it's inimitable. It's it's just absolutely um, one of the highlights of the entire franchise is watching this guy work. He's just one of I mean, the best it's actors iconic. He really only has like a few scenes per movie, but every time he's on screen, it pops. It works. It's like the rhythm of it, the banter. You feel like, you know, the that the Daily Bugle somehow the like inner bullpen of it got, you know, locked in uh like a nineteen forties or fifties movie about newspaper people. Because just like, you know, the ins and outs and everybody's you know, just like, you know, really quick dialogue. Just like, oh, well, you know, it's like, oh, run the story. Oh, run it on page three. Bah, 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 bah. And it's like so good. And the rhythm of it is amazing. And like the way he can just the the ego of him. And like, and I've, you know, like, you know, I've loved this character for years. He's, he's such a great foil uh, for Spider-Man in a realm that, you know, isn't always, you know, he's he's the bad uh, propagandist. He's you know the the guy who's given Spidey negative press on a very rare occasion in the comics, maybe more times than uh, <laughs> he would like to remember now. Um, but he has been involved in the creation of a number of uh, Spider-Man villains. Um, but you know here he's you know just sort of like you said you know just this bloviating 
presence and sort of uh, and some people have uh, speculated to various uh, degrees and uh, the man himself uh, certainly didn't often dissuade it but that uh, that Jameson was sort of Stan Lee's attempt at uh, self-parody to a certain extent. You know, the kind of you well, know, was, I- iconic um... mustache and sort of the, uh, you know, just uh, you know, the guy in the head office at the bullpen, you know, railing on all, all the other people. And, you know, and maybe he didn't start out that way, but I think, you know, there's certainly, there's a level of humor and a level of, you know, Spidey always getting to kind of, you know, he doesn't always get his, you know, come up against the villains, but you know, against Jonah, yeah, he uh, he usually winds up getting uh, the upper hand, and uh, it's interesting now because they've you know like Jonah's like uh, really developed you know over the years in the comics, and you know he and Spidey have become, uh, if not friends, then certainly you know respected colleagues uh, to one another, you know. Jonah's always trying to, you know, find ways to help him, which, uh, you know, often backfire because Jonah's understanding of what's helpful is uh, quite skewed uh, by his own ego. But uh, he's also just like kind of, uh, you know, as we see at different points in this movie, he's there is a good, a, a certain inherent nobility to him, like especially when it comes to being a newspaper man. Uh, you know, he he may like you know rail at his people and try and shortchange them but when the chips are down he has their backs and he does have his own version of integrity um that then i think makes it makes all the kind of egotism and ranting and raving and cheapness uh kind of lovable because it's just like oh well you know he's just of an, enough of a nice guy that we can enjoy what a jerk he is. Yeah. You know, a few uh, little things to mention about this scene, too, before we move on. Uh, Betty Brandt, his assistant, is played by Elizabeth Banks here before she was famous. I forgot to mention yes. that, uh, that when another uh, before they were famous person, Octavia Spencer, is the person who uh, introduces or, or is, uh, uh, gives Signs the orientation Peter in at the to wrestling, wrestling event. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that. Also, um, uh, Jonah's assistant is they're talking about you know trying to get pictures of Spider Man, and he mentions Eddie can't get a picture of him. Of course, name dropping Eddie Brock, who will appear in uh, Spider Man Three. So, just a few little tidbits there. But I do like Jonah's like obvious bias that no matter what, he for some reason thinks Spider Man is the bad guy. You know, if there's you know, trouble, Spider Man shows up. He must be causing it, not solving the problem. Uh, and uh, worth uh, just just to name check him, just because like I love this actor and I love this character, but uh, yeah, the kind of the editor to Jonah's uh, publisher position that's uh, Bill Nunn playing Robbie Robertson, um, who mm-hmm. is sort of <laughs> I guess if Jonah <laughs> if Jonah's conscience had to have a human form because it was surgically removed from his body, that would sort of be uh, Robbie's position. He's sort of the even more uh integrity having newspaper man like classic you know roll up the sleeves um kind of perry white type more um and also worth calling out here i think uh a couple of other raimi stalwarts uh one we get his brother ted um 
in the role of uh, the sort of just nebbishy, ever-suffering staff member of the Bugle coming in with ideas that immediately get dismissed or shot down. Uh, And of course, Ted Raimi appears in almost all of uh, his brother's films. He's sort of his, one of his good luck charms. And uh, also uh, during that sequence, I think, because I know there are a few of those sort of like man on the street uh, montages. So I'm trying to remember if it was the first or the second one, but uh, the punk rock girl who uh, mentions that a guy with eight hands sounds kind of hot uh, and I did not realize, like, I didn't recognize her, like, the first couple of times I saw this movie, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit, and then, again, once you see it, you can't unsee it, but uh, that is played by uh, Xena, warrior princess herself, Lucy Lawless. Oh, that's uh, right. Of course, Xena yeah. was executive produced by uh, Sam Raimi, so, uh, you know, it's keep, keeping a lot of these cameos in the family, as it were. Right. Uh, some quick scenes to blast through here. Uh, so Peter goes to – he finds himself by this Moondance Cafe where we find out that Mary Jane is uh, not chasing her dreams as a starlet but just getting by as a waitress. Uh, but they say, hey, well, well you know, we should go hang out sometime. Uh, she does – She we find out she is dating Harry. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a surprise to Peter because they're living together and he never mentioned it. Uh, right. And Peter goes back to the apartment with Harry, where uh, Norman also appears. Harry needs some help with school, and we find out that uh, Dr. Connors, uh, who will later be played by Dylan Baker in subsequent films, never to become the lizard, but um, fired Pete because he was late. And this is our first indication that, like, being Spider-Man is interfering with Peter's ability to actually, like, do what, you know, keep that, hold down a job. Uh, that'll pay more dividends in Spider-Man 2. But in any event, uh, Norman wants to know Harry is who Harry is dating, and Peter pointedly points out that says Harry has not mentioned whoever this mystery woman is. Um, but again, Peter says, you know, the he that's kind of derailed by seeing this uh, reward for Spider-Man photos. So he goes, Peter goes out to foil a mugging and make sure that his cameras are around webbed up to get pictures of the thing. This is very like straight out of the comics and, and definitely from the nineties show. I remember this vividly yeah. of like, Oh yeah, yeah. He sets up the cameras to take pictures of himself. Uh, he, it's a cool little fight scene. Not much to say about it. Some cool acrobatics that we get to see Spider-Man fighting bad guys the way that Spider-Man fights bad guys. You know, it's much more acrobatic. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, Oh, you know, drop in, you know, punch kick you know like either you know the the way we've usually seen you know like superman fight which is much more you know just sort of like you know oh i can take any damage so you know i'm just going to you know kind of throw punches like a brawler and then you know batman you have various forms of martial arts depending on how much mobility uh each of their individual suits gives them and yeah here it's much more you know it's it's dynamic it's you know it's it's gymnastic it's there's uh, you know, an aerialist uh, quality to it um, that, you know, just we know he doesn't fly. We know, but and yet he defies gravity. And he, it's, yeah, I think they captured, especially in this sequence and in a few others, like, you know, just the very unique way in which Spider-Man fights. There are a couple of other right. fights in the movie where it's a little more like, 
like, oh, that feels a little more pedestrian uh, for Spider-Man to fight that way. But, you know, ones like this are you know, like, you know, yeah, that, that feels like a Spidey fight scene. Yeah, agreed. Um, they're going to get better at this as, t- as the franchise goes on. Um, we cut back to the Bugle where uh, Jonah's verdict on these photos is that they are crap, crap, mega crap. Uh, he's going to give him 300 bucks. Uh, and uh, he says, you should take home a nice box of Christmas meat. No, uh, no job. Christmas meat. You're, you're, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Freelance. Freelance is the best thing for you. You know, so meaning, you know, I'm going to cheap out and not pay you very much money to do this. Uh, we now cut to a scene that I think now we can kind of camp out on this a little bit, which is this board meeting scene where Norman delivers, you know, Oh, how great Oscorp is doing compared to quest. And, you know, they're they're going to we find out the board is actually going to sell Oscorp to Quest. They're going to approve it. And the, the only way the deal goes through is if Norman is kicked out as CEO and he, you know, gets very angry at this. And we see this is like Goblin angry, you know, not just Norman angry, which I like. Right. It's like it's like peeking through the cracks. Like, you know how much I sacrifice like him, him like barking that line is like, oh, no, that's the Goblin. And uh, they tell him they're going to announce this deal after the World Unity Festival. Uh, I I like this board scene a lot. It again, it seems funny that like, you know, oh yeah, everything's going great. That's why we're going to fire you. Um, you know, so I understand why Norman's angry. This is bullshit. Um, but yeah, for sure. You know. But yeah, it's you know corporate America. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get to World Unity Day, which sort of looks like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. There's a lot of like bal- you know, giant balloons in Times Square, and we have you know, to re- super solidify. Well, it this is in fact in Macy's Day. Macy's because parade. it is Macy's Gray. Yeah, because yeah, Ms. There. Macy Gray is the headlining act. Firmly planting this movie in 2002. Oh yeah, for sure. Macy Gray. Yeah. <laughs> What everybody was doing in the 2000s. Going mm-hmm. to diversity festivals headlined by Macy Gray. Right. Uh, so I'm not, like, not talking of- shit about Macy Gray because Macy Gray kicks ass. But I'm just like, she is very much kind of of that period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Pete's doing his job. He's taking photos. He happens to notice that up on this balcony, Harry and MJ are kind of uh, together. He you know, you know, checks that. Also, you know, they're wearing red. You can watch the color theory in this movie that like MJ's wearing red, uh, and I believe uh, Harry's wearing blue, and you can sort of track when people are wearing red and blue versus like purple and greens. I don't know that it means anything most of the time, other than just like, hey, did you notice they were those are Spider-Man colors, um, or <laughs> those are Goblin colors. Uh, anyway, but but uh, but she won't let Harry kiss her. Uh, Harry spots Pete down on the ground, and he's kind of defensive. But before this can go very far, Pete's spider sense kicks in again, and Norman Osborn comes flying in on the glider in full uh, Green Goblin costume, including the the crazy like you know samurai mask. Uh, yeah, and Power he, Ranger Goblin, I think, was the uh, the the best colloquial yeah. term I heard at the time for uh, this take on the suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it makes more sense in this universe than having him, like, facially transform into a literal goblin. Because, uh, again, William Defoe's face does plenty all on its own. You don't need to do that. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, I don't know that this... I think maybe there's maybe a better design for this mask. 
than the one that we got. Uh, and clearly, they they're not fans of it because the first thing he does in No Way Home is like he smashes it. <laughs> we'll have to oh, wear yeah. it, which is funny. Um, but anyway, um, it's he, he uh, well, it's attack. it's an interesting thing because like there are different you know takes and aesthetics. Um, you know, yeah, and I don't know necessarily what the right way to you know go about it. You know, because there are versions of. Uh, the comic, certainly the ultimate line of comics, and some of the uh, uh, animated series that have come out since then, are the ones that have you know Norman like you know full on like mutate into you know like a more inhuman form, and like you know the it becomes more of a mutation uh, the way that the Goblin Serum works him. In the like original comics, uh, it's just like it's it's a mask, but it's like a a rubber like, mask. Yeah, basically, but it's like because it's comics, usually, um, maybe not so much at first. You know, it's a little more kind of like got just sort of this like plastered smile onto it, which they try to evoke. You know, here with the you know grills on the mask, I guess. But um, you know, eventually it kind of takes on in the same way that like Spider Man's eyes on his mask can you know like convey emotion and change size and shape. You know, in the comics. The goblin's facial expression through the mask is able to, you know, change a little bit more. So I feel like there was a, you know, so like I, I understood and even, you know, still understand why they made the choice they did. Um, but yeah, the uh, kind of what we were talking about a little bit uh, last time with Incredible Hulk, you know, the like, while I understand the intent, the execution, uh, I think, fell uh, very short because like you said, you know, you're immediately getting rid of, uh, one of the greatest tools that the actor underneath the mask has. And I think like, and the kind of rationale they have where you see when we see the inside of, uh, Osborne Manor, um, you know, he's, clearly got a fascination with masks. There are a lot of tribal masks kind of lying around. And I think if there was something a little more, I think evocative of that and, you know, doing, and, you know, like, you know, we come from a theater background and, you know, there, there mm -hmm. are techniques uh, of mask work that I think could maybe make things work a little bit better where you're not completely stifling Willem's, facial contortions underneath this weird chrome cone head looking thing. Um, yeah. That, yeah. I think what you said, yeah. Middle ground would definitely work, mm -hmm. but you know, here, cause we've been building up to, you know, it's like, Oh man, you know, we know Norman's gotten the serum. We know, you know, someone's out there blowing these things up. We know the goblins coming. We've heard the laughter. Oh my God. And then he, you know, like swoops in and it's this big dangerous thing. And it just at that point, it kind of becomes a little bit of a Saturday morning cartoon and not, yeah. it feels, it doesn't feel entirely of the same movie that we've been watching this. Yeah. I was going to try and recap this action sequence. Um, I, it's hard to do cause it's fairly frenetic, but let me just throw out a few of the things that happen in there. One, we get our Stanley cameo as he is, uh, uh, the Norman throws up one of these pumpkin bombs onto the balcony and it blows up. So, like, bits of it come falling down and it gets pulled out. Stanley gets pulled out of the way. Um, Pete does the Superman run, you know, where he's unbuttoning his 
uh, shirt, and we can see the Spider-Man logo underneath. This is right out of Donner's Superman, which is cool. Oh, yeah. um, Norman th- throws a special pumpkin bomb that turns all of Oscorp's board into CGI skeletons. This is very reminiscent of like Blade CGI. This is re- this is one of the worst special say, effects yeah. of the movie. It's so goofy, and I guess the radius <laughs> on that is pretty small because it vaporizes all these or it skeletonizes all these dudes. But Harry and MJ, who are on the same balcony, are untouched. Um, and I guess it was a prototype in, yeah. bomb too because we never see it again. <laughs> Right. This is the only one in his arsenal that does this. Uh, but yeah. he, uh, uh, so Pete has to like save a kid on the ground. He has to save MJ, which he does. Um, and uh, he, one thing he does is he pulls like a wat. He reaches up into the glider and like yanks a, uh, one of the wires inside. So Norman loses control and goes flying off and goes, we'll meet again, Spider-Man. And one of, that's one of those lines that's like, this is too comic booky. Like, it doesn't work to have a human being say those words. Like, it is, yeah. it is odd. Even, even Willem Dafoe. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to point out that this, like, that exit, like, there's something very Wicked Witch of the West about it. You've got this, like, green thing flying through the sky with this trail of black smoke. Uh, I feel like he definitely wanted to evoke that, like the cackling and everything. Is, is oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's totally intentional. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Peter, like he said, he grabs MJ. He swings off with her before the thing collapses, drops her off on a balcony. And she says, who are you? He says, I'm your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And just takes off going, woohoo! Uh, <laughs> so it's it's a... Well, you know, this is a good day for him. You know, he saved everybody. He's a hero. Um, you know, he stopped this Green Goblin character. Um, but this does mark a point. This is one of the things that bugs me about this movie uh, that I have to call out here because this half of the movie after it, the, the this is a structural problem with the movie, which is the Green Goblin doesn't have a plan. Like, he's not right. trying to take over the world. Like, what's his objective? His objective... At the at first, the objective is you know basically take out his corporate espionage, take out the competition at Quest, take out his you know traitors at Oscorp, which he succeeds in doing. He murders them all, <laughs> you know, to a man. He succeeds in this endeavor, and so then for the next half of the movie to him just be, be him being like, well, I'm gonna fuck with Spider Man because I'm the hero, villain and he's the hero. Like that to me is where things kind of structurally lose some steam. Uh, compared, you know, compare that to Spider-Man Two, where Doctor Octopus has a goal. That's you know, Spider-Man is getting in the way of that goal, but his goal is not like I need to fuck with Spider-Man. My goal is I need to build my machine. I feel like this movie needed something like that. Like, what is the go- Goblin trying to achieve? And just falling back on, oh well, he's crazy. And so he fixates on Spider-Man because you know, that's what he'll do because he's nuts. It's like that's like seventy-five percent of the way there. You need something else. Like he needs a grander purpose that the movie is just missing. So for me, that that's a bit of a a bit of a problem. Or even if it's going to be that with Spider-Man, I think like I think you can get the the other twenty-five because I agree with you. But I think like you can also get rather than having him have some kind of you know grand plan that you know spider-man has to thwart um you know i think you can get him there by doubling down on his you know fixation because it it does feel like you know 
he shows up. He kind of, you know, fights with Spider-Man. He, you know, says, like, you know, uh, team up with me or die. I'll let you think on it. And then goes away. And then we get that, like, another time or two. And it's just like, it never feels like there's an escalation until Norman realizes who he really is. Um, at which point, then I think you get a little more of that, you know, narrative momentum. Because it's not just like, oh, I'm going to set these things up so that I can uh, fight with Spider-Man. So that we can have a scene where the hero and villain fight. Um, at that point, the, I think we get a little bit more of that momentum back and a little bit more of the, because the stakes become more personal because Norman and his fixation on Spider-Man can more effectively target the people who will affect Spider-Man and affect Peter. Uh, whereas here it's just kind of like, it feels a little haphazard. It feels a little like, and we don't really get a lot of the sense of why he fixates so much on Spider-Man. Like we get in sort of their most iconic battles in the comics, you get a little more sense. There's a, but they also have more time to build out, you know, like we met the goblin in the comics long before we ever knew it. I mean, that was one of the mysteries of like, you know, it's like, who is this green goblin? And then finding out that, Oh my God, it's Harry's dad. Oh, it was like this bombshell moment. And then there's all manner of things with like, you know, they have just all manner of battles and things happen with amnesia and then getting the memory back and then wanting to retaliate. And like, uh, you know, I'm going to punish you for, because my son got hooked on drugs. Uh, it's, just a whole like you know back and forth you know because comics are more of a soap opera you know you can't always do that in movies but i think you're right that there is a solution there i don't know that the solution is like goblin needs like this plot to thwart but i think he does need a more justified objective even if that objective is i am fixated on spider-man and i'm going to make spider-man's life hell um, we need to know a little bit more why is it you know it, I don't feel like it can just be because like oh yeah we fought him that one time oh yeah he beat me so now I've got to beat him like feels a little pat like I right. think you do need you're right you do need a little more uh, emotional drive there you need him to have is, a more a stronger objective a stronger want that. even if yeah. that want isn't I'm going to control the power of the sun or I'm going to, you know, rob the bank or I'm going to blow up the moon. If the goal is I want to torment Spider-Man like fuck, that's all really a lot of what Joker's plan in Dark Knight boils down to or hell for that matter. A lot of Joker's plans in Burton's Batman is really just I want to torment Batman. I'm going to throw, you know, all of these things. I'm going to make all of these moves happen just to fuck with them because they, because right. I'm, I'm fascinated because I want to break them because I want to 
whatever the reason behind that is. I want to, you know, prove that, you know, there is no true nobility in this world because I want to prove that I'm a bigger menace or a bigger freak, you know, whatever the case may be, you, I think you do need to have that there. And it's lacking until he finds out like, Oh, this, you know, hero who's been, you know, thwarting my deeds to thwart, his deeds like you know yeah it becomes weirdly cyclical and futile until then like you know oh you're peter like this is and then like viewing that as a personal betrayal because like you know we've seen norman views peter as the son he never had when he's got a son right there but it just gets yeah it's it's strained and clunky until you get into the third act, you know, there's not, yeah, there's not a great hero villain conflict until you get there. Right. Um, let me speak through a couple of things that happened real quick. They, um, so Pete goes home, Harry, he was talking on the phone to MJ, you know, she doesn't want him to come over. He's, he's trying to, he says, I want to buy you something. It will make you feel better, which is, you know, pretty shitty. You uh, see yeah. how he views the world. Uh, but she hangs up on him mid-sentence. Uh, he, he apologizes. He says he should have told Peter. But, you know, hey, he never made a move. Um, we cut over to Norman. He's having a drink. And, we you know, we hear laughing, echoing. And he says, there's somebody there. And we get this, this Meagle Gollum moment we, we talked about before. And this is where he says, you know, Spider-Man's the only one who can stop us. Imagine if he joined us. But again, stop him from doing what? He already did it. He killed all the people he wanted yeah. to kill. So, I, you know, this that's where that piece is missing. Um, but it is a great scene. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about this performance a bunch, though. So, um, you know, we, we, again, this, this dual performance is great. Uh, we get back to Jameson, and he's, you know, trying to come up with a name. He comes up with Green Goblin as the name. Uh, Goblin bursts in, demanding to know who the photographer is who takes pictures of Spider-Man. And Jameson, to his credit does not give Peter up. He says, I don't know if stuff comes in yeah, the mail. This is that nice. integrity I was talking about before. He's just like, yep, you know, it's, it's like, you know, yeah, I'd like, you can kill me. I'm not going to, you know, like this kid who I just, you know, brushed off with Christmas meat, <laughs> you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. like lay my life on the line for him. Like, I really like that scene. Yeah. It's, it's sweet. And then Peter jumps in as uh, you know, he's, he's changed off screen and he webs up Jonah's mouth, which you know, we've all been wanting somebody to do. <laughs> and he says, quiet, mom, mom and dad are talking. That, that, there's your Spider-Man quip you're looking for. That's your quip. Yeah, that's that, the good one right there. Yeah. yeah, mom and dad are talking. But uh, Goblin gasses Spider-Man. Sleep. Speaking of Wicked Witch of the, of the West <laughs> references. Yep, that's another one. Absolutely. So we get, wake up, little spider. Uh, Peter cannot move. He's paralyzed. Norman tells him, you and I are not so different in exactly those words. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, that's the scene we have, that you and I are not so different. Peter's like, you're a murderer. And he goes, well, the age is down. This is kind of, you know, this veers between, like, stupid and then really funny. as like Because yeah. Goblin, like, he does this very campy, like, lean on you know, the, like, I guess, this slanted surface. It's like. I love the lean. Like, it like it's it's just the 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 casual body language in such a ridiculous outfit 
Like, it just works. Like, I don't love the costume, but, like, I love... <laughs> but, yeah, the whole, you know, it's like, you know, battle each other in pointless fight after fight, killing thousands of people. Yeah, like, yeah, you're right. It's that the casual body language combined with the ridiculous costume uh, really sells it. Uh, and that campiness is, like... It's in there. It's in the performance. And every once in a while, it kind of bubbles up. And this is one of the great ways he does it. It does it again. And uh, he does it in No Way Home, where he says something like, Norman's on sabbatical, honey. Like that That delivery is, again, very, very campy. And it works, you know, in these yeah. small doses. Yeah. Oh, it feels very, like, vaudeville, like, almost to me. Like, yeah. it's this very, like, you know, theatrical. It's just like, uh, he's like, Norman's not here right now. How can I help you? Like, just this very, like, you know, almost kind of Jack Benny, uh, Phil Silver kind of delivery of it. It's just like, you know, this is like old school comedy, um, just hamming it up. And yeah, like you said, in small doses. And, you know, here I think it were, you know, like the kind of fist shaking, you know, delivery of certain supervillain lines, you know, don't always work for me. But here where he gets like a little more, you know, he gets a little more coy. He gets a little more clever. He's playing a little more with humor here. That's when it works for me. Yeah. Uh, but one thing he does tell Spider-Man is that, you know, try as you might to be the hero, people will turn on you. Uh, and we cut to, we see a headline from the Bugle. It says, Spider-Man, comma, goblin, terrorize Bugle, right? Guys like Jameson are going to, you know, make him out to be the bad guy. So he, you know, Norman is sort of, or at least it seems like he might be right about this. Um, less so in this franchise than in... Uh, in the MCU, for example. But anyway, right. um, uh, we have a nice scene with MJ where she says, you know, um, she's still trying to get her acting career together. It's not uh, not really working. Um, but as uh, they part, Mary Jane is followed into an alley by a bunch of, you know, like, three toughs. Uh, she tries to fight them back. Uh, as best she can, but then Spider-Man uh, intervenes, pulls them all off of her. His mask is off during this fight, but she can't see him because it's raining and it's dark. Um, and, but he, after he subdues these guys, he kind of takes off, uh, puts the mask back on, z- you know, uh, zips down from the ceiling, and we get the iconic upside-down kiss, which looks really cool in the movie. If you've ever tried to do that to another human being, uh, kiss him upside down. It's monumentally awkward and not fun. Yeah, but uh, it's it looks one of great. those things that like looks great on film and like just just does not work. Like you know, it's like sword fights in films versus like actual real life fencing or sword fighting are two entirely different things. But the ones on films often look a lot cooler, and they're meant to. Like this is something that you know. Looks cool, feels very awkward and <laughs> out of place. It feels weird on your especially mouth, especially if it's like raining. It just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it is a nice moment that they treasure together. Especially once she'll later find out that you know, in subsequent movies that that was him, she'll think on this very fondly. Uh, all right, so yeah. we get to and it's like it's uh, such more, a great shot. Mm-hmm. Film, just like the whole sequence, like the action of it, the sweetness of it between them. But, like, it always, like, it, it bothers me just, like, a little bit that, you know, like, Peter watches these guys go after her and then is like, 
well, let me go <laughs> change into my costume real quick. <laughs> it's like the shit that could have happened to her in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then once we're into the scene, it's really cool and it's dark and it's rainy and like, you know, it uh, looks really cool. And then you get the kiss and like he zips away and she's left you know, laughing in the rain and it's really gorgeous. But like right beforehand, I'm just like, wait. Peter, just go, just go stop them. <laughs> just, There's no time. She can be stabbed by now. Uh, <laughs> it's like, just go run and stop the guy now. Like, fuck your secret identity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get this cool scene at a burning building where, you know, Spider-Man swings in to do his thing. And even though he's on the outs of the authorities, they're kind of like, no, 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 we, we trust you to do what's right. So go, he goes in there. He saves a baby from the burning building. He, he, we hear a woman scream, uh, and like Ned Flanders, uh, it is in fact the goblin uh, making that scream. <laughs> and uh, he, but Peter goes in there. We get this nice. You know, we realize that Norman has deliberately set this fire to draw Spider-Man's attention. Uh, we get another fight between them. He, we do this cool slow mo matrixy jumping shot as he dodges all of these spinning goblin ninja stars. One of which, though, connects and cuts him. And uh, after Peter escapes, we cut to Thanksgiving back at Harry's apartment. This is, I will say, though, real quick, that the the fire is the uh, scene where the most egregious would-be attempt at a Spidey quip lives. Which is the, uh, uh, you're the one who's out, Gobby, out of your mind. Like, even the way Toby sells the line feels like he's just like... I don't want to be saying this right now. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, it's so stiff. It's so artificial. Mm-hmm. Like, and like not funny or like clever yeah. in any way. It's just like, who? Like, yeah. It, it, it works on a comic panel from the sixties. It doesn't actually sound right coming out of a person's mouth. Yeah. It's the old, uh, yeah. what Harrison Ford said to, you know, George Lucas on the star Wars set. It's like, you, you may be able to write the stuff, George, but you can't say it as an actor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we see Norman. I-, I love this. He's looking real rough in the elevator. Like, you know, it's, it's oh, not yeah. clear if he's got himself or the goblin, but we can see it's taken a lot out of him. Uh, and he says work was murder. Uh, Pete swings in. He's, he's on the ceiling. Uh, he's late to Thanksgiving because of this, and blood from that cut drips onto the floor ever so close to Norman, who detects it. Uh, but Peter is out the window and under the windowsill before Norman turns around and sees him. Uh, and then and we it's get this weird awkward, how Spider-Man uh, yeah. bleeds red paint. That's just the <laughs> weirdest thing in the world to me, that his blood has the exact consistency of red paint. Yeah, it's very CGI-looking and... I, just, I hate that fucking drop when it hits it's like, like it is that yeah, is paint is, that is red paint i have seen is, such <laughs> better stage and screen blood in my life and that is not it that is red paint it is so incredible how much better the special effects are in two than one like they clearly are like oh no we got the time and the money now we're gonna make this look right uh anyway so pete comes in with a can of cranberries he tells some bs story about how he had to pry it out of an old lady's hand um, and so Norman sticks his fingers in the food, which is like weirdly like, uh, you know, bestial for a guy this rich and sophisticated, uh, which is fun. And as they're having their like dinner, conver- Thanksgiving conversation, Norman noticed that Peter is bleeding through his shirt 
He says he got clipped by a bike messenger, which Norman does not buy. And now both of them, they, they know. Each knows. Um, and so they, uh, Norman excuses himself and says something has come to his attention. I like how awkward this scene is. This is like your classic, uh, you know, family Thanksgiving in a movie uh, scene where it's really uncomfortable for everybody involved. Yeah. And like, I think out of any scene in the movie, it feels like Willem Dafoe is having the most fun in this one. Oh yeah. This is a chance for him. Just just all the little touches. Like when, when may like smacks his hand and then he just like pulls, pulls his fingers up anyway. And like, you know, licks them off while he's just staring daggers at her. And then like, as he's sort of, you know, sharpening the knife and just kind of looking as and then just like that predatory leer he gives at MJ when Harry's not looking, just like, oh, it's just so creepy. Oh, just, just, ugh. The worst feeling. But like, that's how good he is. <laughs> like, he can sell mm-hmm. these things. And then switch to the next thing and then just be like, you know, the charming patriarch. And then just. Right. Like, the line between Norman and the Goblin, I think, as the movie goes on, just gets, like, blurrier and blurrier. Um, And this scene in particular. And then just, you know, yeah, when he sees, you know, the cut on the arm and, you know, starts piecing it together. And just that kind of, like, reeling back of, like, no, my boy can't be. Mm -hmm. I must go and plot my revenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, we go one last thing for Norman on his way out, which is where he ha- try- has what he thinks is a private moment with Harry, and he tells him, you know, you can do better than MJ. Just, you know, have sex with her and dump her uh, in not so many words. MJ overhears that, and she says, hey, thanks for sticking up for me. Uh, and he's and uh, Harry is defensive of his father, setting up, you know, again, pieces that will come into play in later movies. Uh, so yeah, we go back sure. to the, yeah, we go back to the uh, Casa de Norman, and uh, he's having another tete-a-tete with himself uh, via the mask. And Goblin tells him, basically, you know, you, you can't hurt Spider-Man. He's invincible. But you can attack his heart. You know, the, pe- the things that people he cares about. So he, that night he goes and scares the living shit out of MJ by just blowing open the house. Uh, oh, Aunt May. And, yeah, I'm, is that what I said? Did I say Aunt May? You said MJ. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, yes, it's Aunt May. She's saying the Lord's Prayer, and he uh, blows up the wall, and he says, finish it, at the moment where she's supposed to say, deliver us from evil. From uh, evil! This is super, like, Sam Raimi, uh, you know, uh, Evil Dead 2 type direction. It's, you know, it's cartoony, yeah. but it's still sort of threatening. Um and so she's in the hospital. It's not clear that she was actually physically injured, but she clearly had some kind of an episode of like just sheer terror about it. And um, yeah, well, like as because yeah. as they're bringing her in, she's like, you know, and that's what you know kind of clues him in a little bit. You know, he's like his eyes, his terrible yellow eyes. He's like, yeah. oh, it was the goblin who attacked, and like you know, he blew up my house, and like, yeah, like what really is the. It's just like, oh, I'm going to, you know, scare your aunt and blow up your house. That, that's sort of that's saying, my big plan to, the, to attack your heart. <laughs> I guess it's, I can get to the people you love is what he's saying. Um, so there's this. You know, no, for sure. But it's like, you know, your your big your your big opening salvo to attack the people he loves is just like, I'm, you know, going to you know blow a hole in uh, the upstairs of your childhood home and scare the bejesus 
uh, out of your aunt. Uh, if only she'd let me eat those yams. <laughs> those yams, those horrible orange yams. <laughs> the horrible orange <laughs> yams. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's a nice scene in the hospital where, you know, and we think Aunt May is uh, unconscious. She's actually listening to this exchange. But uh, Peter and MJ talk and using Spider-Man as a proxy because MJ says that, you know, she, she kind of has the hots for Spider-Man. And she, he says, oh, well, you know, Spider-Man told me all, you know, all, how he feels about you. And he basically says all the things he's wanted to say but can't because he's afraid. And right. afterwards, MJ basically, you know, I mean, not MJ, Aunt May says, you know, um, gives him a pep talk again. Gives him the moral, like, uh, boost he needs. Meanwhile, Harry comes home. Uh, he hears cackling. And um, basically, they yeah, they have kind of like a little moment of reconciliation, um, although that will not pay too many dividends yet. Uh, but again, it him. also sets Harry up, like we've been saying. You know, like every move in this you know movie is setting Harry up for his decline in uh, in the later films. Uh, and this one, right. where it's like you know, this little bit of approval, this little bit of appreciation and affection, this beginning of a reconciliation with Norman, I think, um, really, you know, it, it sets him even further along that path because it's like you know, this is everything he ever wanted, and it was snatched away. But you know, rather than just being denied the 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 fatherly affection, or you know, like losing his dad, uh, who never you know, loved him or appreciated him. There's this sense of like, you know, genuine loss here because, Oh, this is what I always wanted. And I was just starting to get it until that Spider-Man came and took it away from me. Right. Right. You know, it's like you said, he's, he's so starved for love from his dad. that This little bit of affection is like, it buys him immediate loyalty. Despite all yeah. the evidence that Norman is uh, you know, not uh, a good guy, uh, so Peter wakes up, and of course, uh, you know James Franco, like you know, defending a uh, you know an, an abusive, predatory personality, you know, like no dramatic irony there whatsoever. Um, right, was, you know, just <laughs> purely uh, all on one level. Never came back to. Uh, um. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to talk about all. The There's a reason we won't be did. seeing this variant of Harry anywhere in the multiverse. I don't think. <laughs> no. Uh, no, Harry is canceled. Uh, so uh, we get the like this moment where Aunt May is we're waking up and she tells uh, Peter, "Oh, you can't do everything. You're not Superman, you know." Uh, that moment was in every trailer, uh, and it's cute, of course. Um, and he, you know, she, she kind of lets on, she knows that how Peter really feels about MJ and says, you, you know, basically you got to tell her how you feel. Uh, he called, Peter it's a really calls, charming a story about the first time he saw her as a kid too. I love that story. In the way yeah. she tells, Aunt May, is that an angel? I, I don't know. For like, same... She reminds me of my grandmother when she's telling that story. My grandmother loved telling stories and. Just like her delivery of that line, I was just like, "Oh, I hear my Mimi there." <laughs> like... 
it's cute, but it also brings up shades of the Phantom Menace. So I'm a little leery of this because I think Anakin's first line <laughs> to is like, "Are you an How angel?" How dare you, sir? I know, I know. Um, all right, so uh, so Peter tries to call MJ. He gets the voicemail at first. He tries again, and he just hears cackling on the other end of the line. And we hear Goblin say, "Can Spider Man come out to play?" Uh, MJ wakes up on top of a bridge, and uh, Norman is singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider. And uh, we can see that, like, this cable car is in danger. Uh, ultimately, um, you know, Peter is drawn to this. He's, he swings. I'm not exactly sure how he knows where to go, but he, he finds them. And we get this, you know, the, the classic villain choice of, like, well, you can save the people on the cable car or you can save MJ, who you love. Um, you got to choose because you can't do both. Uh, and he, he says, we are what we choose to be. And he drops them. We see this is a very Raimi shot of MJ falling and the cable car falling reflected in opposite sides of Spider-Man's eyes. And, uh, of course, it's not a choice because he can save both. He just jumps to grab MJ and grabs the cable car. Uh, it's tricky, but he does it. But I like this shot of him like he's hold, basically holding MJ in one hand and kind of holding the cable car in the other which leaves him, you know, very, very vulnerable as like this point where he's just sort of swinging in midair as Goblin sort of just keeps making passes to try and attack them both. Um, you know, th- this is really tense and good. This is a good action sequence, I think, as opposed to like the, the yeah, Unity yeah. Festival. And it was like very intense, I think, especially for uh, Spider-Man fans who understand uh, even before this film and certainly even before uh, uh, Mark Webb's uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, that uh, there's not a great history of uh, goblins and Spider-Man girlfriends uh, being dropped from great heights, especially from uh, from Bridges, um, the very iconic and very tragic uh, death of Gwen Stacy um, involved very a, a scenario just like this of uh, Gwen being knocked off the top of a bridge. Uh, in the midst of a battle between Spidey and Goblin and him, you know, Spidey trying to save her uh, less successfully um, than he does here. Um, But yeah, I love that, you know, Goblin, Goblin can only understand uh, a duality. It has to be this or that. There is this still in his mind, even in this kind of blurred time, there is that separation between Norman and Goblin for him. And he, so yeah. he assumes the same of Spider-Man. It's like, you know, it's like you have to choose to be Spider-Man or Peter Parker. You can't be both. And the thing that Peter's come to understand and that he asked, again, it's one of those lessons he keeps having to come to understand, especially in the next one is not only can he be both, he is both. And, you know, saving people is just what he does. That's the lesson he's learned. Um, and no matter what it takes, like he's going to find a way and sometimes he fails for certain, but you know, here he's able to, you know, extend himself out that little bit and kind of put himself in that position where, like you say, he is left vulnerable. He's left, you know, weak. And that's a position that Goblin can't understand either why you would leave yourself and that, and at no point does Peter try to defend himself. He's just trying to 
he's willing to take the hits as long as he can get MJ and these kids into a safe position. And that's what makes him the hero. It's not that he's the guy who fights the bad guy. It's he's the guy who saves everyone. Right. And also like, occasionally needs where... saving himself, as we see, uh, you know, coming up right here. That you know, the yeah, that's, apparently the that's... the entire city of New York comes to Peter's defense. This is this is what I was about to get to. Is this is our post nine eleven? You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Uh, this is New York. As... Spider Man's trying to save those kids, man. You're gonna go on them. He's trying to save kids. It's like, yeah, yeah I... I'm the one who tried to kill the kids. But it's like, it's still like I don't know. It gives me it gives me the good chills anytime I see it. Still, because I'm like, yeah, 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 you do it. I'm not even from New York. I've been there once to, uh, for an improv festival to see uh, my girlfriend at the time. Um, but uh, you know, but it still feels well, like I... you know, especially being a Marvel <laughs> comics reader, New York is like it is very ingrained for me. And it's like you know, that's where the Marvel heroes live. That's where the Ghostbusters are. That's where the Ninja Turtles are. New York is sacred ground, man. Especially if you're a geek, and you know, so yeah, there's that kind of and you know, in that moment, sitting in a theater and you know the early earlier part because uh, the first part of 2002, not six months. Well, we guess actually, like it was like nine months, nine or so months after, you know, like, yeah. definitely. It was still fresh. Year, it was still fresh, yeah. And I remember like getting choked up in the theater at the time, and it's still like you know I watch it, and I'm like you know, and I can see it, you know, the the strings of yeah, they went back and probably shot this afterwards and everything, but like it's effective. It's like it's like it it works on me. Like I can see the strings getting pulled. Uh, and I'm still happy to do the dance. Well, I'm not from New York. I, I am born and raised in Southern California, but my, my family, uh, I've come from a long line of New Yorkers. So on behalf of the Empire State, all I can say is, hey, I'm walking here. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, because that's what this, this, this feels like. These are cartoon New York extras, you know, that just wandered off, uh, you know, the original West Side Story or something, and they're just here to, you know, be hey, you know. Um, but anyway, it, it is a, as you said, it's a good scene for all those reasons. But it is still very kind of silly that like the, the, this guy who can throw bombs that turn people into skeletons is being thwarted by like a handful of people on the bridge, like throwing garbage at him. And so, but it gives no, Spider Man just enough time. Thing, it's it's also worth noting just a little bit that you know, again, kind of the cinematic televised version of New York, you know, one of the most you know, diverse cities in the world that apparently the only uh, two black people who exist in uh, Spider-Man's New York uh, are Robbie Robertson and the other guy on the bridge. Right. You have like two <laughs> of this entire crowd. You have two spokesmen you know, yelling at Goblin mm-hmm. and one of them is the other black guy in New York. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but this this distraction gives Peter enough time to get everybody down to the ground level, uh, so they're safe. But Norman basically plows into him with the glider, and they both kind of go careening into this ruined church. I'm not sure even where this is supposed to be. Um, sure, but they have. Yeah. A, they I think have that's a good, as good an answer as any. <laughs> yeah, they have a good knockdown, dragout fight though. This is just you know, this is just serious, just. 
ultra strong people punching each other. Uh, yeah. In particular, oh, with Goblin and... winning. Yeah. Yeah, Peter's just getting his ass handed to him all throughout this fight. Like, you just, and you feel, especially once, like, the mask starts getting shredded and you can see, like, the, the expressions bomb. on his face. Oh, yeah. And just the way that, like, the way it's edited together, the way it's shot, the way, like, you know, time speeds up, slows down, like, the, the sound will cut out for a second, like, just feels so kinetic and brutal. Every punch hits. You feel the weight behind them. And you're just like, you're, you know, it's, you made the uh, comparison to Rocky earlier. This is just, this is Rocky getting his ass handed to him by uh, Apollo and just like everybody, you know, just in the theater, in the stand, just like, get up, get up, come on, get up, Spidey, get up. Absolutely, you can you can feel that in this fight that you know because it's so lopsided for a while uh, until Peter kind of grabs the Goblin's trident as he's you know, going to use it on him and sort of uses that momentum against him and pushes him back and like pulls a brick wall down on top of him with his webs uh, and then kicks him up to this platform and, and at which point Osborne starts you know. You know, telling him, "So stop! It's me. I didn't. I didn't do anything to do it. The goblin made me do it." And uh, he's controlling the glider. And I'm not sure at which point he's supposed to warp away to the MCU. It has to be before this because he still has the mask. But it is a very like funny concept of like I like the idea that like he warps away to the MCU, is cured of his uh, green goblinness, and then is warped back only to be killed by his own glider. Uh, I'm not sure what the what, what's supposed to happen after that moment in the in the timeline here, but anyway, um, I think like he, you said, po- you know, he comes back with a glider, so you know, it's 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 a, a, at a sufficient point in his timeline, and of course, but as we've also seen, the rules of the multiverse, and we'll we can get into this more when we get into No Way Home uh, for real, but you know, my understanding at least is that like. Those events, like, it doesn't nullify what happens in Spider-Man. Because we clearly see, like, you know, that version of Peter, that older version of Peter, still exists. All of those things still happen to him. And he's going to go back to his timeline and, you know, live on. So it's this is really just creating more of, like, a branching, you know, variant timeline where this version of Norman hopefully gets a chance to live. So I think like he's coming back, you know, like before, maybe before the wall gets pulled down on him, but, or maybe just after and he comes back and it'll be like, you know, like, you know, it's like, wait, wait, stop. And this time he'll be genuinely contrite and not controlling (laughs) his goblin glider to try and kill, you know, everything that is about to happen. (laughs) Well, that's why he says, Oh, (laughs) um, I like oh, the way yeah. that's the cure Norman Osborn going, oh. It was an Easter egg all along. It was... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's what happens. You know, he, you know, he says, you know, you're, you know, you're like a son to me. And he says, I had a father. His name was Ben Parker. And, you know, he says, Godspeed, Spider-Man. He turns back into the goblin for a second on his face. He pushes a button. The glider comes flying. Uh, Peter jumps out of the way, which allows the glider to just go straight into Norman's torso. Uh, and he says, you know, uh, don't tell Harry and dies. Uh, yeah. So Peter drops the body. And that back moment, off. like, I, like oh. that was what I was alluding to before too. That moment, like I had a father. His name was Ben Parker. Like that's Peter's like emotional arc. 
like come full circle right there for me. It's like him claiming when the last thing he got to say to Ben was basically, you're not my real dad. And here really, truly, honestly claiming him like not in a way like there's, you know, the, the goblin doesn't get anything out of it. It's not like, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, screw you, Norman. I had to die. It's really Peter to himself, you know, just fully claiming in that moment, like, yeah, he was my dad and he knew. And even though we had that fight, like, I don't need to replace him. I don't need to substitute him. He's still my dad. Right. Like, so, yeah, it's it's a really, like, it's a poignant line. It's It's Peter, I think, saying it for his own sake. And kind of, you know, rejecting the Goblin's offer. Uh, or Norman's offer, I guess. Because, you know, at this point, it's not even, you know, Peter doesn't even really seem to not believe that Norman is there or genuinely contrite. Um, he's just kind of like, you know, yeah, but you still did those things. And, you know, you... Uh, it's like, it wasn't me. It was the Goblin. It was the Goblin. Oh, Peter, thank God for you, Peter Parker. Um, and then, yeah, he's just like, he's like, no, I have a dad. Like, you're, <laughs> you're not my real dad. <laughs> it's just like, it, it connects so well back there. Even like, if it's not this, you know, moment of, you know, it's, it's not, you know, Eowyn says like, I am no man or anything where it's like, you know, oh, this is the thing that ultimately defeats him. It's like, it's, it's Peter saying it for his own sake. Right, you know, because of course he's not going to take the goblin's offer. There's no like doubt in anyone's mind. You know, the the scene would play out exactly the same if Peter was just like, like, no, (laughs) you have to be held accountable for your crimes. And Norman just then goes like, all right, well then I'm going to kill you. Um, And everything plays out exactly the same. It's Peter saying that for his own sake, like really drops that emotional pin, um, for himself, and then. Yeah, and you know, in the inversion of fathers and sons, then, yeah, don't tell Harry. Dead. And at that point, Pete um, takes the body, drops it off at the Osborne estate. Harry sees this happening, uh, and Pete jumps out the window. Uh, but from here, Harry now you know believes that Spider-Man killed his father. And uh, we go to the funeral for Norman Osborn, and you know Harry basically says as much as you know. One day I'm going to get that Spider Man, and you can see how hard that is for Pete because he knows what that means. Uh, he then talks to MJ, who conf- tells her fi- tells him finally that she has feelings for him, and he friend zones her. Uh, basically, I can only I, that's all I have to give. Uh, she cries. He walks away. We hear him come back in narrating and says, whatever life holds in store, with great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. And we get the the first of a Spider-Man tradition, which is the end of the movie, is him just swinging gloriously. Uh, these hero shots of him swinging through the city. And we get one particular, the final shot is him on this big American flag. Uh, and then he swings into the camera. And then the sated hero will save us. Save us. Not gonna stand the word. 
I listened to uh, that damn song so much that summer. I like, think that is my yeah. I think that is my favorite it's Nickelback like, song. It's, it's, which it's is, a banger of a song. Yeah. I'm not, you know, man. I know it's popular to hate on Nickelback and Chad Kroger, and really, there is really only just the one Nickelback song, and you know, and this one is just like all the others. But d- damn it, if him singing I don't about hate it. <laughs> the heroes and whatnot, it no. just it gets me. I like it. It's a good song. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about the ending though a little bit. Um, the the, the yeah. to me the I remember like you know the fact that he friend zones her and walks away. That was a huge shock to people uh, when when that oh, happened. Yeah. Is it you know? Um, and it's like all right, it's sequel bait. You know, I mean, we should you know know that it's okay that it's sequel bait. But you know, for most people, like oh man, that's a really unsatisfying ending. And it's like yeah, that's the thing, right? That's the price he pays. He has to give up. His, you know, the shot at the girl of his dreams, because he knows that being Spider-Man around her is dangerous to her, and uh, you know, they'll that does sort of rob her of her agency, and they deal with that in the sequel, where it basically says like, hey, it's my choice to make whether I choose to be with you or not. Uh, but they're both right. I think you know he's right to say like, I, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to put you in danger for my selfish desires. Just as much as it's you know you know wrong to rob her of the choice to be with him if that's what she wants, um, so they're they're both right in this instance, and I think uh, you know it's, yeah, it's a, that, like I said, it was a good shock of an ending. Such a uh, maybe it's not a you know classically satisfying ending in the sense of you know oh the hero is always supposed to get the girl, but for me it's like you know my favorite movie of all time is Casablanca. And the I was just thing thinking that of makes, that when you said that. Yeah, it's the it's the Casablanca it's the ending, right? Guy willing to give up the love of his life, not only for her own good, but for a greater cause. Um, and yeah, that like that really resonates with me. And you know, yeah, we're so used to just the classical model of, well, the you know, good guy beats the bad guy, and the good guy gets the girl. And uh, they ride off into uh, the sunset together to be happily ever after. And there's no happily ever after in these Spider-Man movies. Um, Really in any of them. They're all about the price, the cost, the sacrifice. Uh, Even when you get what you want. um, you, know, you have to give it up. The The second movie deals with that. You know, the ending of the second movie feels very, you know, if the ending of the first movie is Casablanca, and I'll bring this up when we talk about it more, but the ending of the second movie is The Graduate. You know, where, oh, I got the thing I wanted, and now, oh, I have to live in the reality where I have it. Um, right. And we kind of linger there. Like, there's a sadness to getting what you want. There's a sadness to not getting what you want. And there's a sadness to getting what you want. And like, that's the hero game because you are serving a cause greater than yourself. And you know, the wives and husbands and partners of, you know, actual real life heroes of soldiers and firefighters and police officers, uh, you know they have they to. All know. I think they're as big a hero as anybody who you know puts their life on the line because they have to 
be the person who's there for the person who puts their life on the line. The person who's putting their happiness, their, you know, maybe not their mortal life, but their existence in factors that are completely out of their control. Um, and you know, and yeah, MJ doesn't get to make that decision here. And it is kind of sad. There's a nobility to Peter's sacrifice, but it is also, it's kind of what I was talking about before about the, the dual meaning of responsibility. You know, there is a responsibility to the world. There's a responsibility to your fellow man, but there's a responsibility to yourself too. And a responsibility to the, you know, people that you love and he loves her and completely denies her of the opportunity to make this decision. He doesn't, you know, say, Hey, by the way, I'm Spider-Man and we can't be together because of that. And then have that conversation. He just makes the decision out of hand. Like, Nope. We can't be together, so I'm going to lie to you about how I feel. And then the shitty, th- like, you know, and again, these are things that, you know, once we get into you know, biting down on the sequel bait. But he's so shitty about it in the second movie, too. Because it's like he tells her that mm-hmm. and then keeps coming around and being like, you know, it's like, oh, hey, what's going on? Let's hang out sometime. What's going on? And it's like, no, dude, it's it's like one or the other. There's no half measures when it comes to, you know, personal sacrifice. And that's. You know, that's why you keep getting torn in two different directions. Um, right. Because you made the noble decision, but then, like, as shitty as that is to her, but then you don't follow through on it. You don't, like, you know, if you're going to make the noble decision, go suffer in silence. Don't keep, you know, haunting her and being like, it was like, oh, hey, yeah, by the way. Like, no, dude, you know. She put her heart on the line, not knowing. And you smashed it with a hammer. Yeah. And it's like, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, hurting her for her own good. It's like, uh, I don't know. I think you're right. You know, they are both right. And neither of them is operating with all the information that they need. And so neither of them can make. Both of them are right, but neither of them can make the right choice because they don't know everything they need to know. And you can't make a decision. You can't make a right decision if it's an uninformed decision. Right. And really, like, their arc as a couple through these three movies, um, which is an incomplete arc by any stretch of the imagination, but that's also kind of the point of it is that there is no happily ever after. There's always just to be continued. There's always what's the next movie. What's the next issue. What's the next problem. Um, But they come to have better information. So they're able to make better decisions, which then lead to other. it's like, you know, okay, but now you have to make the next decision. Now there's the next problem to deal with. Now you have to, there, and it's a process. It's an evolving process. And they, you know, address that in No Way Home as well. When Peter's talking about what his relationship with MJ is like now. It's like, you know, yeah, well, we got there. It's it it's cryptic. He says it we worked it out. 
Yeah. And we worked it out and we're still working it out. And it's like, you know, that's the nature of a relationship. There is no, they lived happily ever after. There is no ride off into the sunset. There's, hey, we got through another day together and we're going to keep doing that until we're not. And here is like that first big stumbling block of, I'm not going to let you be an active participant in that decision because I have to go and sacrifice this for your own good. It's like, yeah, you, I, it makes sense that you think that, but also, so, ah, I don't know. I go back and forth on it because I'm just like, oh, it's so noble. It's such a noble sacrifice. And then at the same time, oh, it's such a dick move too. <laughs> Such is the dilemma facing uh, our young superhero. Um, but that <laughs> Such is, is his uh, that burden. Is, yeah, Such is his gift. <laughs> that, that's his burden, his gift, his curse. Um, so that is the end of Spider-Man 1. With great 1. noble hero moves come great dick moves. <laughs> that's right. Um, appreciate you listening uh, to this and sticking with us to the end here. And a um, couple admin things before we bring it to a close. Of course, if you like the podcast, please rate uh, rate it on iTunes, subscribe, tell people you know. Uh, that is all helpful. Uh, if you want to talk to us, please follow us on Twitter at Go to the Marvels. Uh, if you want to send us feedback, that's the way to do it. Just send us a DM there. And uh, coming up next, since it's April, we wanted to do something for April Fools. So we're going to do something really dumb. We're going to do Howard the Duck, uh, which Howard you may not even know. The duck. <laughs> <laughs> you may not even know it's a Marvel movie, but in fact, it is technically a Marvel movie. So we'll have fun with that. One it is of the a, it first. Been, it is not the first time it has been podcast fodder, and it won't be the last. But we're gonna have fun with it. Um, it is a weird, weird, weird movie. Uh, so that'll be fun, and um, that's really all, everything I think we've got to say. Um, Jordan, anything else you feel like saying before we wrap it up? Uh, I love Spider-Man. I love this movie, even with all the things I was pointing out. Uh, I love that there are even more Spider-Man movies, uh, and very different Spider-Man movies that we get to cover. Uh, thank y'all so much for taking these journeys with us. Um, please come on back, uh, and keep, keep digging into the, the wealth of the house of ideas with us. And, uh, I guess the only other thing I've really got to say is, uh, Excelsior. Enough said. La la di di da da da. Now Norman's a billionaire scientist who never had time for his son. But then something went screwy, and before you knew, he was trying to kill everyone. And he's riding around on that glider thing, and he's throwing. Come up with those tight
pretty sad day at the funeral, Norman Osborne.